Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> music. Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> you pop crazed youngsters and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee of a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always, I'm joined by two people who know far more about music and can talk about it better than I can. First up is Woo Neil Kulkarne. Afternoon, Al. And my second guest is Taylor the Hairy Cornflake Parks. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> How are we, chaps? Back at work, gutted about that. I'm sweating my bollocks off today again, Al. I don't know why it's suddenly got sunny. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. Every time we record, the weather's dead nice. Lovely weather outside, everyone out having fun. Three rather squalid individuals talking about pop music. <laughs> <laughs> but are they really having fun, though, Neil? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now then, we've got loads of new people listening to this shit, and if you're one of those new listeners, thank you very much. We're, 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 we're kind of like breaking all records on the chart music front this month, and we all know what we're on with by now, don't we? We take one episode of Top of the Pulse from back in the day and pull it to absolute bits. This week, I'm responding to a request by Neil and Taylor and picking out one of the earliest episodes of Top of the Pops in existence from February the 5th, 1970. You called this one, didn't you, Shabs? Yeah, well, I mean, basically because I think I've been quite familiar with a lot of the footage from the kind of 70s episodes from about 73 onwards. But before that, it was just a mm-hmm. real blank spot for me. It's almost as if the first bit of Top of the Pops that I remember sort of seeing on uh, in programmes was perhaps T-Rex from later on, a little bit later on than this. Yes. So um, just wanted to see what the show was like before the one that mm. we're familiar with, in a sense. Yeah, the same. It's got a different feel to it in those days. They hadn't quite uh, got that sort of chummy uh, 12-year-old birthday party feel together, you know. So, although Top of the Pops started broadcasting on New Year's Day 1964, the BBC's policy of wiping the vast majority of recorded programmes immediately after broadcast and not recording live shows at all means that there are no existing copies of full-length episodes of Top of the Pops before Boxing Day of 1967, and only five episodes of the 60s have been preserved, and two of those have no presenter audio. This policy even extended to the BBC's coverage of the first moon landing with only one minute of live coverage still believed to be in existence. And according to rumour, hours of footage of the moon landing were almost immediately taped over with horse racing coverage. (laughs) Fucking BBC, what were they like then? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, there's sort of a good excuse for it, which is that a videotape in those days cost about £28 billion. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there is that. they They had to reuse them. But at the same time... Um, they were quite bureaucratic about it. There's a famous story about Peter Cook when he heard that they were going to wipe the uh, whole series of not only but also, um, went to the BBC and said, no, don't do it. And they said, no, we've got to do it. 
because we need the money for new tapes. And he said, all right, I'll buy you a new tape. Give me that old tape and I'll buy you a brand new one. And they still wouldn't do it. So <laughs> okay, now. It, it no longer exists. And this is because the BBC were under pressure from right-wing newspapers to be parsimonious. So, yeah, another excuse to say, fuck the Daily Mail and fuck the Daily Express. Don't worry, though, because every Queen's Christmas speech <laughs> since the 50s is still in existence. Thank God for that. <laughs> That's that, that. That's actually upsetting about the moon landings nearly getting white, though. Did they actually get white? Most yes, of they did. Yeah, yeah. You, you look around. Man. You look around for BBC footage. There's hardly any of it. There's one full episode of I think it's Panorama the the day mm-hmm. after uh, that's that's on the BBC iPlayer website where um, people argue about whether it was worth the cost or not. Um, and yeah. you know they were probably right because NASA could have given that money to the BBC <laughs> to preserve all these episodes at top of the pops. I think we'd be a far better world if they had done that. <laughs> you see, the moon landings is why I'm called Neil, like a lot of people born around about that time. What, what yeah, called. really? Yeah, because I mean, my my parents had my uh, sister in '69, very close to when the moon landings happened. They didn't know she was going to be a girl. Uh, with a complete lack of imagination, they just saved the name Neil up because Neil was very current with Neil Armstrong and everything. Up for three years until I was born, and that's why I'm called Neil. Gutted that Buzz oh, wasn't the first one down there. Yes, down there. <laughs> yeah. Buzz Kulkarni. That would have been a fucking amazing it. name. Second only to Chili Kulkarni, I think that would have ruled anyway. Yes. <laughs> so, 1970, music-wise, what are we saying, chaps? That rundown that happens at the beginning of the show mm-hmm. is. Is awesome. It's inc- there's so many great records in there, yeah, and quite a variety in there as well, which I like to see. There was Harry J and you know Liquidator and things yes. like that in there as well. Um, I loved also the way with the rundown that the the the, the font and the colour that they chose. I know it's black and white, yeah. but um, what I didn't know is something that I've recurrently felt whenever I've watched top of the, old top of the pops episodes is not not having seen the photos of the bands before. Um, they're like unique almost to Top of the Pops and what I didn't realise was that from about 64 onwards a guy called Harry Goodwin was hired to basically create those rundowns and the images for those rundowns yeah. and he basically took photos of every band that was in the top 40 from about 64 to about 73 and that's why those images are kind of unique there are some of those images in the rundown that I've never seen of those bands before right. Um, so I really enjoyed the rundown. And looking at the chart, it's it's surprising how I know there's always one that you don't know in these rundowns, mm. but it's it's surprising how for something so long ago, I think most of us would know like ninety five percent of those tunes. I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, as far as as far as music in uh, February of nineteen seventy goes, uh, the LPs released this month include Morrison Hotel by the Doors, Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. Funkadelic by Funkadelic and Moon Dance by Van Morrison. So you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of decent shit going on there. But obviously, we're not going to see that in there in the singles <laughs> charts. It was one of those times where most of the interesting music was happening away from the charts. There wasn't a lot of uh, rock. There weren't a lot of rock singles and pop singles that were particularly great around that time. It was mostly most of the good music in the charts is soul. Um, mm. which was going through a decent patch. But the uh, it's a, a weird... It is a lull, but it's really interesting to discuss. Um, uh, like As time goes on, the 60s becomes slightly less interesting. Um, yeah. And this 
we the seventies only become more fascinating the further we move away from them. But uh, yeah, nineteen seventy is a funny year because the, like these last few years before the oil crisis were technically the best years uh, to be alive in certainly in the West uh, in human history. Mm. You know. The high, uh, mm -hmm. everything was there for you you know very little to complain about um relative to any time before or since um and nobody was happy at all because all the basic stuff that people had been fighting for all through the 60s had, had uh were had either happened or were in the process of happening and all the yeah. more ambitious stuff had been basically put back to a later date because it it was it had proved impractical so everyone was just kind of stuck there in this terrible situation of um, of having most of what they need and not very much of what they want. Um, and there's a sort of a, a, a slightly beaten down feel to these years, you know, um, until a bit of poverty and turmoil and misery um, came back to wake everyone up again. Mm. When you look at it now, this... Uh, little period of slightly stale decadence um <laughs> has got its own feel and it's uh it's quite it's quite interesting to look at from uh, from so many years away yeah i mean i i have this kind of as a lot of us do have this sort of innate resistance to that kind of narrative that things were better at some point um and i normally resist it especially when it's part of my lifetime in a sense so if somebody's got golden memories of the 90s, I'm always sort of first up saying, I was there and it was shite. Mm. But when something happens, I don't know, before you were born, um, I, I, I have to say, uh, watching this episode, I, I was kind of enraptured throughout. I loved this episode. There was no moments like the later 70s episodes where I have no problem calling out something as being shite. I'm, I'm just kind of entranced by... The, perhaps the fact that it was before my time to, to a certain yeah. extent. And I think we, we, we repeatedly, um, on, on these podcasts, we talk about these lulls in pop music. Um, and I think we talked about that when we did the 75 episode yeah. and also the 79 episode. And we certainly talked about it in the late 80s episode. It tends to coincide with those moments when th this thing that you've mentioned, Al, teen hysteria, yeah. that word hysteria... Hysteria isn't really part of this episode. Pop is quite sophisticated in this episode. Mm. And glam certainly isn't even on the horizon to a certain extent. No. Um, I think we can probably coincide those lulls that we feel, those slight lulls, and it's only a slight lull in this episode, with those times when pop becomes like a sophisticated thing that pleases grown-ups and kids to a certain extent. Yeah. And that's what you see on this episode. There's no kind of mind-melting moment as there would be later on in the decade. I really like the weird feel of this period. Um, it's It's got a sort of a like a plain chocolate feel to it. You know what I mean? It's like it's, it's quite, a, quite, an, quite a, a, a dark adult uh, feel to mm. it. Um, it's not... There's nothing fizzy and uh, like Neil was saying. There's nothing sort of fizzy and exciting about it. But it's nah. it's interesting. I mean, it, basically, the feel that I get from this is we'd been to the moon and it turned out it was just some rock that's a long way away. <laughs> and yeah. down here, it's still raining. So yes. what 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 do we do now? Um, <laughs> there is a sense of uh, pop music spinning its wheels a bit, but mm. you know, there's still enough energy there to. Uh, to keep it going but it's a weird time it's 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 before that sort of um you know depressing kind of watergate sweeney 70s yeah so 
you've still got this guy. It's like all the 60s stuff had just moved into the mainstream. So uh, mm. all these sort of way out styles, like blending with the great British anti-style. Yes. So you enter this era of <laughs> drab, drab flash, like Brentford nylons, bedsheets, the colour of blancmange, and mm. crimson and navy blue carpets, and like shit rust bucket cars, the shape of clogs. But, yes. they're, but they're bright orange and, yes. uh, you know, paisley yeah. wide yeah. fronts and stuff. It's, uh, yeah, a, a really strange, it's like you watch Monty Python, it's really got this feel to it, you know. It's a, a very sp- specific time and it's hideous um, and really interesting. It is, isn't it? What it is, it's the death face of optimism. It's the, the, the twisted uh, final expression on the face of optimism. Um, when they find it uh, after two weeks lying alone in its flat. (laughs) (laughs) So, pop-crazed youngsters, stay with us as we enter Top of the Pops, the Bourneville years. In the news this week, it's revealed that the UK has secretly flogged 100 chieftain tanks to Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. Egyptian frogmen have just sank a 900-ton Israeli ship. A rogue tiger has been tranquilised with a gun at Heathrow Airport. Jack Mills, the great train robbery victim, has just died. But the big news this week is that councillors all over the country are trying to get the film The Killing of Sister George banned, as it's about lesbianism. Quite right, too. Uh, it's a fucking cracking <laughs> film, that is. I it love is a that great film. film On the cover of The Enemy is Viv Stanshaw, Booker T and the MGs, and Gene Pitney. It was around about the time when it still had a kind of like a newspaper front page feel about it. Uh, no smash hits, obviously. So the cover of the TV Times is Alan Wicker with the Bluebell Girls. So what else was on telly that day? Well, BBC One has run Bill and Ben, Play School, Jack and Ore, Blue Peter. Hector's ass, nationwide, and has just finished 10 minutes of Tom and Jerry. BBC Two has also run Play School at 11 o'clock in the morning, and then it shut down until 7 o'clock in the evening. It's currently showing, in this case, an educational series for managers. ITV has run programmes for schools in the morning, and have put on Skipper, Magpie, and Crossroads. Right now, they're screaming the 1951 film Where No Vultures Fly. The story of a game warden in East Africa who's had enough of killing animals and wants to be mates with them instead. <laughs> so, yeah, not a lot of competition today for Top of the Pops. No, not in the slightest. I mean, it, it, you know, and nothing on in the afternoon at all, I'm guessing. It's no. This is pre-crown court days for television. It is. It's the the days when everyone had jobs and were happy. (laughs) All right, then, Paul Craig's youngsters, it's time to go back, back, back to February the 5th, 1970. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Although 
this episode was broadcast in colour, only a black and white version exists. Colour TV had been a thing in the UK since the mid-60s, but the only colour programmes then were American imports. It wasn't until 1967 that BBC Two broadcast Wimbledon in colour, but the first colour services in the UK came in November of 1969, when the colour TV licence came into being. By this time, there are only 200,000 colour tellies in the UK, and it wouldn't be until 1976 that there were more colour TVs than black and white ones, meaning that we're watching what the vast majority of the audience of 1970 would be watching. Chaps, can you remember when you first had a colour telly in the house? I remember the first thing I ever saw on a colour telly was an episode of Bagpuss. This would wow. have been this would have been mid seventies, kind of late seventies, and it it was it, it, good introduction. It blew my mind. Um, yeah. Obviously, I have no idea the colours involved. Um, in you, you never knew before then that frogs were green. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, no, and cats were red and white. Exactly, the startling pinkness and whiteness of of, of bagpuss. I, I can only um, compare it to the first time I ever got glasses. I was only seven. <laughs> I was only seven. And, you know, you do that thing as a kid of just struggling being blind and then you eventually get glasses and you're massively upset about it. But I yes. remember putting them on and it, it was like a drug experience. It was like suddenly seeing everything for the first time. <laughs> and seeing Bagpuss was just a revelation in colour. But it, I, I think you're right, Al. Most people didn't get colour tellies round our way sort of until... I'd say late 70s, actually. 77, yeah. I, I seem to recall getting a colour tally. Yeah, it seemed to be a real class dividing line, didn't it? Mm, yeah, like video recorders would be later. I think we had a colour tally quite early, which is weird because my dad was not one for gadgets. Like, uh, by the early 80s, when everybody else was getting CB radios and uh, <laughs> uh, 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 Breville sandwich toasters and soda streams and stuff, we, uh, I'd be oh, please, no, it's a waste of money. But I think we got, I think we got a colour telly quite early because one of my first memories is crawling right up to the screen and putting my eyes right next to it to see what it looked like close up and seeing yeah. the mm -hmm, dots, seeing mm -hmm. the colour yes. dots. Um, and unfortunately, that I mean, I grew up to be a critic. <laughs> it's like you know what I mean. It's like the weakest link in the weakest link in every chain. I always have to find it. There it was. It was just a load of coloured dots. <sighs> Taylor, um, just wanted yeah. to say I'm always tickled by the story of your dad eating some pedigree chum. <laughs> yeah, what it was, it, it it's the most out of character thing that I can ever remember him doing. Um, I mean, he was like—I mean, he wasn't a boring man, but he was quite, uh, quite, quite straight-laced in some ways. And uh, yeah, I <laughs> this came up the other day because we were talking about brains faggots. Yeah. <laughs> and as a kid, I always used whenever I had brains faggots for tea, I always used to cut one in half and push one of the halves over with my knife. So that it was like the pedigree chum advert, <laughs> where they put the dog food out of the tin and cut it in half. Solid nourishment section, yeah, yeah, good solid meaty nourishment. Yeah. Uh, cross section, it looks great, um, <laughs> and yeah, and it reminded me of the time when we had a dog, uh, and my dad had a fork full of pedigree chum to see what it tasted like, <laughs> uh, and. He reported that it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> My dad used to eat dog biscuits. What for fun? For like, not as an experiment. For fun? Oh yeah, for kicks. Yeah, yeah there was all we had, we had a dog and everything, and uh, you know, 
when he was lobbing the dog biscuits out, there was always one left for him. Was it those pastel-coloured, bone-shaped ones? Yes. Yeah, because they, yeah. they look really nice. Yeah. They do, don't they? <laughs> I had Bob Roberts chocolate drops, I think, which were for dogs. Because yeah. at that age, you kind of just want to get chocolate no matter how you can. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and because I lived in an old people's home, they had a massive block of cooking chocolate right. in, in, in the pantry that they had. And I used to go in there and shimmy up a little ladder and chew a little bit off the corner. Nice. <laughs> it's my Charlie Bucket moment. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other great dad food story at our house was when my mum went away for a week or so and uh, she left uh, she left some steak out for me dad and she rang him up said did you have that steak and he said yeah well I, I had both of them and she said eh he said yeah yeah the first one was really nice second one was really fucking thin and really hard to chew and she just said that was the blotting paper underneath the steak he fucking fried it <laughs> he'd fried the blotting paper of the steak and ate it with some chips <laughs> <laughs> Top breeders recommend it because it's first class <laughs> nourishment. Yes, it's number one. It's top of the pops. Bombarded with flames, lights, weird camera effects, and pants people doing a rhythmic gymnastic display in little tennis shorts as the fourth top of the pops theme, known on Wikipedia as Unknown Brass Track plays in the background and there's a a sort of a tony blackburn cut out with mo- moving eyes and mouth rather like yes heaven forfend some fiend had pulled off his skin to drape over some wheels and cogs and wires <laughs> to create a sort of rudimentary animatronic dj with makeup like a little dolly <laughs> Frightening, oh, isn't it? It's like a it's like a ventriloquist dubber. And they would do this for all of the DJs who presented Top of the Pops at the time, which means that yes, there is a Jimmy Savile version of this floating oh, about. My God. And that is fucking terrifying. <laughs> I bet it is. Um but I mean the, the opening title sequence is it's quite abstract and I wouldn't say it's an experimental movie, obviously. Um, Pans mm. people doing this kind of almost Hitler Youth kind of movement. Um, yes it is, isn't it? I was gonna say that. <laughs> oh sorry, mate. But um there's a few moments in this episode where you get the sense that the production staff, they're allowed to just experiment. Uh, uh, mm. and, uh, experiment's the wrong word because it implies something challenging or something. It's just a little bit of fun here and there. But there are mm. just these odd, inexplicable moments that you, you sense would have been ironed out of the show um, only a matter of a few years later. And mm. um, because we're very early in 1970, like a lot of the show, the title sequence has this thing of still feeling like the 60s ultimately, like the 70s mm. haven't really been kick-started The theme yet. tune, what do we reckon on it? Well, it's <laughs> it's easy listening essentially. It's, it's, it it's is, like isn't a, it? Yeah, it's like a library track. I mean, it's it's the sound of young thrusting excitement and pop music um, accord, a, according to 50-year-old men. Yes, it's the kind of thing you can imagine Simon D <laughs> playing in his um, Jaguar. Yeah, it's like when you see an old film and uh, there's a scene where people are dancing to that instrumental rock music that was apparently really popular among <laughs> hippies. And yes. So um, yeah, it's, it's like that, but of a, a, more, of a bit more swinging. 
It's yeah, I suspect it sounded mm. pretty old and dead at the time. So the host for this week is Tony Blackburn. At this moment, he's the breakfast show DJ, making him the undisputed kingpin of Radio One. As a matter of fact, six days after this episode was broadcast, he's featured on the Man Alive documentary, The Disc Jockeys, as he goes about his business of the day, all the time moaning about his £40 a week salary, which would be £605 today. That Ooh. is a bit mingy, isn't it? But 150 quid a day for judging beauty contests as well. Well, yes, there is that as well. <laughs> yeah, he, do- he doesn't really mention that, does he? Because what better judge? <laughs> who, who better to judge human beauty than Tony Blackburn? My favourite bit in that is where... Um, they show him doing his terrible jokes and stuff for a minute, and then the narrator comes on and says, the show is unscripted. Like, just in case you thought they had the team from Sid Caesar's show of shows working on this. That documentary is amazing. Um, it is, isn't it? It still gives you that sense, really, that, that, that Radio 1 and, and pop music was in the control of a particular class of people. Mm. Uh, I mean, quite a few you know, public school-educated people. Yeah. Um, and yet you still get the feel that chance played a bigger part then in getting a job in, in any way um, than it would now. Um, yeah. out, of, out of the cabal of people who present Radio 1, they just look like a lot of... What you get is a certain sense of just, just strange men who wouldn't fit anywhere else, enacting mm. their imaginations in these kind of little squalid-looking uh, squalid rooms. Roscoe yeah. seems the most outward-going, but... Yes. But Kenny Everett and Tony Blackburn, they seem like, I mean, Tony Blackburn in particular, um, it, the programme kind of emphasises what a, what a strange man who doesn't want friends because he might disappoint them. And mm. leads this strange kind of Travis Bickle-like existence. Um, yes. <laughs> David Travis Bickle, if you will. <laughs> Fucking hell, imagine that. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, some nights after I do a show, I have to wipe the cum off the seat. <laughs> you can still also get a certain sense of snobbery about pop. I mean, Kenny Everett and John Peel in that show really kind of see pop as a trite thing. Um, and there's a sense already, I think, where you can tell that Kenny Everett wants a TV deal and wants to get on TV yes. to fully enact what he wants to what he wants to create. Yeah, I mean, this would be like the first time that the, the, the curtain had been pulled back on Radio 1, really. You know, anyone's actually looked at it properly. Yeah, half the curtain. It'd been, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, it'd been going. It had been going for, um, for, what, you know, two and a half years or something. But all of a sudden we see the guts of the station exposed and... and you know the the actual lifestyles of the DJ. I mean, we see we see Tony Blackburn. He's got his sports car. Roscoe's got this big chopper, and he's kind of like going around the motorway and and chatting up everything in a skirt. Um, Kenny Everett is already coming over as as massively weird. Um, there's Jimmy Young, of course, who's just Jimmy Young, and I, I, is John Peel in it? I think he was, yeah, wasn't it? John, yeah, he was. John Peel seems like the sanest person in it. Um, admitting, mm. yes, as always, and when it comes to these things, talking down Radio One, it is it is terrifying to see this collection of uh, of misfits. Um, I mean, Kenny Everett is obviously miles beyond everyone else in terms of his sonic imagination and stuff. But whenever yeah. you see him yeah. Yeah. being interviewed, he's so self conscious and so obviously unhappy. Um, mm-hmm. It's it really gives you the creeps. Uh, there's Jimmy Young dressed as a as a wedding guest, um, and someone yes. <laughs> they say to him, um, 
do you listen to much music when you're away from the studio? And he snaps, not really. And if you listen to two hours every morning, neither would you. It's like an alien talking. And then you get this lady yeah. of a certain age, like this middle-class lady of a certain age, talking about him, the way people talk about fascist leaders. Like, sort of, <laughs> well, I think people like him. And then... Um, Roscoe is like this ego running on his own juice. It's like there's no talent or there's nothing there of any yeah. kind. No, he's just just, just this, a lot of shouting. He's isn't just there? shouting these incoherent noises and basically banging his chest in front of a load of mini-skirted girls. It's like DJing in those days was like Tinder with cheat codes. It's like you just walk <laughs> in and just go ah and. Also, the yeah. disturbing thing about Roscoe is he looks, especially from the side, he looks a lot like Ondine from the Andy Warhol films. This won't mean anything if you haven't seen the <laughs> Chelsea Girls. But all the way through it, I was expecting him to shoot meth into his wrist and start slapping people. I suspect they do that if they turn the cameras off. Also, Roscoe drives a van with his own name written on the side. Yeah. Which I've yeah. never seen anything like that before. But still... Well, apart from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> true, but this but still, Tony Blackburn is the most disturbing presence on this. Yeah. When yeah, he admits yeah. that he has no friends, but in the same breath is very keen to let us know that his girlfriend is a bunny. I think we're meant to yes. assume a Playboy bunny, but... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's, yeah, there's a lot of odd bits with Tony. When he goes to that a record industry thing, um, yeah. that nightclub... Um, uh, I was just uh, delighted to see two people carrying a plate from what must have been a buffet. Um, mm. And I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sad enough to have paused the video to see what was on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> Good on it, you. Well, it's entirely cake. It's yes. just different types of cake, <laughs> um, <laughs> which just really struck me as odd. But really, I mean, when I think about it, I, I couldn't help thinking about the teaching staff that I got eventually in school similarly called from a public school background and I mm. think if you just get a set of individuals especially I mean at Radio 1 it's accentuated who obviously have been at some point in their lives in their childhood or their adolescence deeply lonely and, mm. and, and I think that's fundamental to a lot of the people involved um, in Radio 1 if you get those people together and also add the lunacy that comes with a public school education yeah. What what ensued later that we all know about now was perhaps, you know, a bit inevitable. But what was odd about the documentary was that it was not a kind of friendly look at Radio 1. It was like a, you know, post-Marxist critique of Radio 1. Yes, it really it was, was really, it? really, you know, quite deep and intense with these figures like Tony Blackburn who were just... In a sense, yes, he was a product. In fact, he admitted he was a product. But you sense that psychologically, these people were just enormously fragile. Mm. I mean, those Man Alive documentaries around about the time were fucking brilliant. They did one about called The Ravers. Yeah. They did that amazing Hell's Angels one in 1973. Yeah, Skinheads. Yeah, the Truth About Skinheads yeah. and Hell's Angels, which is yeah. incredible. And um, what was the other one they did? All Dressed Up and Nowhere to Go about the youth yes. of Newcastle in 1972, mm -hmm. yeah. which is incredible because it's about these, like, it's it's about the gang wars between skinheads and the hairies, as they were known, <laughs> and everyone in it looks fucking rock. The skinheads look rock. The hippies look fucking rock. The interviewer sociologist, he looks fucking rock. You wouldn't argue with him about <laughs> semiotics or any of that shit. He'd fucking batter you. <laughs> And it's a welcome to this week's top DJ, Tony Blackburn. Hello, everybody. Hello. 
welcome to the wonderful world of Top of the Pops once again. And uh, I shall be unveiling my world-famous kneecap warmers a little later on in the show. Right now, here's a lovely record, and it's uh, number 21 this week. It's called Venus, and it comes from Shocking Blue. go straight into the top 30 uh, and a huge blue screen because it would have been blue screen at the time before green screens came in features cutouts of the faces of the bands and artists uh, one cock up I noticed was that the uh, the current number 30 is by Jackson's 5 <laughs> there's a few of those cock ups Blackburn announces that he'll be unveiling his world famous kneecap warmers later on but first he introduces a lovely record Venus by Shocking Blue Formed in The Hague, Netherlands in 1967, Shocking Blue had a few regional hits in Holland throughout the late 60s, but it wasn't until they replaced their male singer with Mariska Verez that they accumulated international attention with this song, Venus. It's up nine places from number 30 to number 21. I love this record. I it's love, fucking mint, isn't it? I love Shocking Blue. This isn't even their best one. That's the thing. Really? Yeah. Send me a postcard is better. Uh, Love buzz is better. They're they're were a great group. It's this it really often overlooked Dutch music from this time. Neder rock. It's yes. like it doesn't have the sort of streamlined vistas and open horizons of like German music from the time. Um, but it's it's really got something of its own. It does that very Dutch thing of organizing itself intelligently within a very limited space like it's really simple mm. music but there's just something about the way it's arranged that is quite ear-catching and uh and unusual there's um i mean it's basically it's just very simple riff based music with a sort of a bit of a psych overlay uh, mm. But it's got that bluesless European thing going on, and it sort of simultaneously makes it more distinctive and more pop than mm. like the American bands from that period. Um, I mean, when they on some of their stuff, that it, it turns out a bit too much like the worst that can happen here, like a, a less funky Jefferson Airplane. But on all the yeah. singles, they're they're really something, um, and also the this singer looks like the girl that many of us wanted to walk into every house party of our youth you know <laughs> like sort of hip and foxy but kind of approachable provided that you were wearing chelsea boots yeah i mean look we immediately get to see the audience and um there's, there's not many blokes about <laughs> the first glimpse of the dancers is 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 that row of dancers who's behind those kind of bars yeah um like a like a go go prisoner cell block H. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but holy hell, they look amazing. Yes, they uh, do. Yes, the the, the 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 clothes in this episode are just astonishing. I I completely um, echo what Taylor said about, about Shocking Blue because I'm um, I'm only familiar with the singles. Love Buzz is just an amazing song, mm. uh, an amazing production, and the not the lovely thing about this song is is as Taylor says, you can. It, it sounds like an old bloke's thing to say about music, but you can hear everything. You can hear yes. each, you know, you can hear each little element. And and I think Top of the Pops, even though, you know, we, we kind of say it's reaching a zenith later on, perhaps in the 70s, there's a sort of zenith of production values here. I think it's beautifully directed. The way that the camera, one thing that used to frustrate me later on with Top of the Pops is when it, you know, 
cuts to the bassist when the guitar solo is going on or it cuts to the drummer when he's not doing it. This seemed to demonstrate like a real awareness of the song and an understanding of it. And the movement of the cameras and everything was perfect for it. So, you know, it, it's almost like a perfect little pop video um, of, yeah. uh, of this song, I think. Yeah, they come over really well, the band, don't they? Because, I mean, we've seen we've seen in, in the 1975 uh, episode a, a Dutch band, and, and they came <laughs> off as, like, clog-wearing bumpkins uh, in, in leopard print. But this band look cool as fuck, don't they? I'm wondering if the Dutchness of this band would have been mentioned at all at the time, whether anyone was aware of that fact. Well, Tony Blackburn doesn't mention it, does he? Yeah, but he doesn't know anything about anything. He's not <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's true. The thing I, thing I love about Shocking Blue as well is they haven't forgotten that beat music has got its roots in R&B. So even yeah. though their style is quite dry and cool and emotionless... Um, the rhythm section are playing really smoothly and neatly on this record. So yeah. you still get that sense of movement and a groove. It doesn't plod like uh, a lot of records from 1970. So mm. even though it sounds cool and emotionless, it's still sexy and suitable for dancing to. Yeah. Yeah. I think you get that with a lot of music from this period, fundamentally, because an awful lot of these players, um, and drummers and bassists in particular, I mean, they'd have been playing since the early 60s, wouldn't they? So they'd have been playing like mainly R&B covers and black American covers early on in their, early on in their, in their you know, musical career. And constantly they've just developed feel and groove. Yeah. So, so many records that would otherwise perhaps be mediocre are fantastic because they just have that, that wonderful groove to them. And this is one of them. Yeah. Uh, the band are playing uh, on a stage. Uh, with a background of um, kind of like stitched together um, tinfoil panels, which makes them look like they're performing inside a weather balloon. It's, it looks great, and it's kind of got traces of the, of the moon landings. Yes, <laughs> it's like it's like a landing craft. It, it That's right. Great. Yeah, they're not even the best Nedder rock act. That's the that's the incredible really? thing. The greatest. Who should ever, I be listening to? The greatest ever being Panther Man. Who, yes, um, you know, right? He, yes. he wore a PVC panther outfit and sort of went <laughs> with his claws, um, and, and a bit of a Batman he, sort of mask thing. Yeah, yeah, and held a little toy panther for extra pantherness. And um, <laughs> his record Panther Man is um, unbelievable. It's I'm sure it will turn up on the video playlist now. It certainly will. It's what a record, though, isn't it? Fantastic. Yes. It's like it, you just you couldn't you couldn't ask for anything more panthery than that. <laughs> no. You can take me for a walk in the moonlight. You can take me for a walk in the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I have yet to hear this. I look forward to hearing. I think it. you'll like it. So the following week, Venus jumped up to number ten and got as far as number eight. The follow-up, Mighty Joe, only got to number forty-three in May of nineteen seventy, and they were done in the UK. The band split up in 1974, but Venus got to number six when it was covered by Banana Rama in 1986 and is now the accompaniment for a women's razor advert. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
go straight into the next record with a bit of flashing lights and no introduction. What the fuck is that all about? It's odd, isn't it? He is the man who needs no introduction, apparently. <laughs> well, there, yeah, there is that, yes. It's Barry Ryan in his new single, Magical Spiel. Born in Leeds in 1948, Barry Ryan and his twin brother Paul signed to Decca Records at the age of 16 and had three top 20 hits in a row before their chart career started to peter out in late 1966. In 1967, Paul Ryan was starting to burn out as a performer and when he heard a demo of MacArthur Park at a party hosted by Richard Harris, he decided to quit performing and become a full-time songwriter for his brother. A year later, Barry Ryan got to number two with Eloise, which was number one in 17 countries, sold over a million copies and was only held off the top spot in the UK by Hugo Montenegro's version of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. This is the follow-up to The Hunt, which got to number four in October of 1969 and is backed by The Candy Choir. It's just been released and has no chart placing. One thing about this show, apart from the fact that it's you know, 50% longer than the average Top of the Pops episode at 45 minutes, is that there's a lot of tunes that are not in the charts yet. Yeah, why is that? Is that just pure payola? Um, I have absolutely no idea. Maybe it could be Top of the Pops uh, producers trying to plan in advance and assuming that things are going to get into the charts before they do. It's a strange assumption with this particular record, Magical Spiel, Mm. um, which, uh, I mean... I I need telling. Do I like this or not? I That's can't exactly tell if it's the good same or not. as me. Yeah, mm. um, <laughs> exactly the same. I can't tell. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm sure some hipster now would love it. It's for me. It's right on the edge of shiteness. There's there's kind of there's no discernible yeah. book. There's there's far too much clever clever shit. Obviously, I'm gonna love lyrics like Oedipus who loved his mum, Elvis' yes. sweet Sharapank and stuff like that, and just the general shouting of Lucifer is always to be encouraged. But um, uh, I'm not sure if I like it or not. I'm not sure if I like this record or whether it actually is a pop record or whether it's it, it's a sort of proto prog record mm. that I should I, I I should I should kind of disregard. I don't know. Taylor, do you like this record? Well, there's a lot of uncertainty about this record because it can't decide whether it's trying to be camp or whether it just is. Uh, mm. It's like I think I'd like it more if he'd taken it a bit less seriously or a bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because at some level, this is obviously a comedy song. Mm. Uh, if you look at the words and the general overwrought uh, nature of it. But yeah. it's not actually funny. But at mm. the same time, you can't take it completely seriously. So, yeah, I have no idea whether I like this or not. I like it better than his other stuff. Like, I've never been a fan of Eloise. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. Because it just is a big sort of puffed up nothing that could have been good if they'd, you know, worked on it a bit harder. Whereas mm. this has got some, some guts to it, you know. It's got like a a more exciting sound to it. And he's a pretty good singer and stuff. But it's, mm. yeah, I've, I, I had to play this one about five times and I still couldn't decide whether I liked it. Because I didn't know this record before, I'd not heard it. Yeah, well, yeah. I played it once and immediately thought it was cat shit, and uh, <laughs> I, I played it since, and uh, I, nothing's detracted me from that initial view. Uh, he's kind of like he's he's flouncing about like a Will Tappers and Shunters Jim Morrison, isn't it? He's got <laughs> he's got a kind of open black shirt, and uh, he's got regulation 1970 massive belt buckle. Uh, yeah. He's all in black, and he's he's backed by a band called Candy Choir, who were um, sort of mid 60s also runs. And uh, yeah, I'm not I'm I'm not feeling it at all. I mean, that said, 
I, I can think of innumerable '90s kind of uh, singers in shit indie rock bands who would kill to look like Barry White. Well, yes, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's... In this. and and I kind of love the way also that it's that that must be Paul Ryan on the keyboards. I'm guessing. I believe it um, is. Yes. Yeah, I like the way he counts in. He does that one two. Yes, three, he does. Four, yes. He changes if they're really playing it. Yeah, to a mind song. Yeah, and there's a lovely bit near the end as well. This kind of weird doubling effect where slightly bigger versions of the band play yes. right behind him. And I'm guessing on the blue it's screens, on a, yeah. Yeah, I'm guess yeah, I'm guessing it's on a screen, but because of the black and white rendering of it, it, it just looks really, really surreal. But yeah, this, yeah. this it, it didn't leave me cold, so that she's just confused. Mm. The other the other funny arrangement of musicians is that the left handed guitarist gets to stand outside of the little enclosure into which the rest of the band have been kettled. Um, and I don't know why, because let's face it, it's not because he's the good-looking one. Mm. It might just be because Barry looks better standing next to him. Um, yeah, and there's the two sure. dads on saxophone as well, isn't there? Near the, up the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To me, what this feels like is a bit of a throwback to uh, sort of the late 60s, sort of about 1968, you start to get this thing where, what you know, where the so-called progressive bands have moved away from singles and they're concentrating on albums, so there's mm. a space to be filled in the charts. So you end up with a, a very particular kind of post-psych, slightly show-busy Pop yes, music. you get a lot of guys with sort of haircuts like Tarot from Ace of Wands, wearing like <laughs> uh, green long collared satin shirts and stuff. You know, yeah. um, and it it seems like a bit of a throwback to that. Mm. Um, and also, this <laughs> the lyrics are amazing. It's like yeah. uh, all this M stuff is for Magdalene, A is for Alchemist, G is for the Grecian gods of light, I is for <laughs> the ice of love, C the clouds of Aphrodite. S is for yeah. Superman, P is for Purify, I is for the incest of the ram, O, Oedipus, who loved his mum. Come on, Paul, it's mam, isn't it? But also, that's E. E is for Oedipus. Yeah. When you look yeah. at it, yeah, because it spells out magical spiel, right? E yeah. is for Oedipus. It's, it, presumably it does, yeah. that's a joke, but like with so many things about this record... That would look really weird on an infant school wall, wouldn't it, as a poster? Yeah. <laughs> teaching the kids how to do the alphabet yeah but it, the, what's funny about this is the the fact that it's all got all the bullshit stuff together like in one lyric it's, you know mm. you, you, you walk down the street and you pass those like clinics or so called clinics which offer herbal healing chiropractic ear mm. candling all these things which have got nothing mm. in common yes, ear nothing in common no shared roots the only thing they have in common is that mm. they're bollocks which you think would be a dead <laughs> giveaway yeah. to anyone going hmm, why why am i getting ear candling in the same shop as i'm getting yeah b is for <laughs> bollocks i think what taylor said earlier about wishing that he'd either taken it less seriously or more seriously is absolutely spot on um the sense yeah. i get i mean it, uh, i i think you're meant to imagine what he's he's singing about, and you're meant to kind of see these things in a sense when you're listening to them. But actually, what I see mm. listening to these lyrics and looking at these lyrics is I see him, Paul Ryan, in a room, perhaps a bit high, um, writing a yeah. song about magic and just stuffing it with as many sort of abstruse references as he can. Uh, yeah, Ouija <laughs> yeah, boards. It's, it's massive laziness, really, on his part. <laughs> 
It really is. It's, it's sympathy for the devil for uh, Mirabelle readers, isn't it? <laughs> that makes it sound better than it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I mean, and you're right. I mean, if he was if he was in a devil costume with all, you know, with a curly tash and a pointy beard and he was mincing about a bit, that, that could have been something. <laughs> but the BBC are going all out on this, aren't they? There is, there's a huge background. But also to the side, there's these big kind of like panels... Did you notice them? You, you hardly ever see them. Uh, of uh, a big screens of a blonde woman, and it looks like she's all she got all blood down mm-hmm. her face, like a like a you know horror movie kind of thing. Yeah, it was the instant recall of the front cover of um, Carrie, which I've mentioned before. Yes, um, yeah, that was a bit yeah. disturbing. But that doesn't that backdrop stay for somebody else as well? Um, I'm sure. So yeah, I think it does. Yeah, somebody else. I think it might even be the Temptations later on. A singing. Oh, I think it's a different image. It's a, it's, I think it's a go-go dancer oh, it, for them. Oh, yeah, I yeah. managed to miss that in, in my five viewings. Uh, I was, must have been transfixed by his piratical belt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the word "spiel." That's not going to be, you know, a, a commonly known word. I never, I never knew heard of that word until Minder came about. <laughs> it's not a word commonly associated with the occult either. No. <laughs> No. So, I mean, the overall impression to me is kind of like Dennis Wheatley Book Club yeah. with free amulets. Yeah, but it's not in love with the occult and it's not taking the piss out of the occult enough. Well, you wouldn't, would you? You don't, wanna, you don't fuck about with Satan on top of the pops. <laughs> so, two weeks later, Magical Spiel entered the charts at number 49 and dropped straight out again. Oh, Satan, you've gone back on your deal. The follow-up Kitsch got to number 37 in May of 1970, and after a number 32 hit with Can't Let You Go in January of 1972, Barry Ryan retired from the music business to work as a photographer. from Barry Ryan and that's called Magical Spiel and that is going to be definitely a smash it hope you're all fitting well this week here's a lovely record at number four from Peter, Paul and Mary leaving on a jet plane all my bags are packed I'm ready to go Blackburn speculates that Magical Spiel is definitely going to be a smash it the first thing he's got wrong tonight. After inquiring as if we're alright, good on you Toner, he introduces the next song, Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul and Mary. Formed in New York in 1961, Peter Yarrow, Paul Stuckett and Mary Travis recorded their eponymous debut LP a year later, which sold over 2 million copies in the US and was number one there for six weeks. In 1963, they played at the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King dropped his I Have a Dream speech, and carved a living as folky interpreters of Bob Dylan tunes throughout the 60s, starting with Blowing in the Wind, their first UK hit, which got to number 13 in October of 1963. This song, a cover of the 1966 John Denver tune, is the first appearance on the UK charts since The Times They Are A-Changing in October of 1964 and was the Christmas number one of 1969 in the USA. And it's up this week from number nine to number four. They're nowhere near Shepherd's Bush at the moment, so the BBC have apparently sent a film crew down to Heathrow Airport to film some planes. 
Taylor, this is um, a little taste of the uh, Golden Oldie Picture Show here, isn't it? Yeah, this is why bands started making proper videos, because they were sick of having their records humiliated by being played over stock footage or <laughs> hastily shot scenes of a model walking around a garden which is mm. what most of these Top of the Pops clips were like. And you think, what's the point of this? You watch Top of the Pops to see bands. You watch Top of the Pops to see how how bands and singers present themselves, not to look exactly. at what is basically an interlude film while yes. hearing the record through your shit TV speaker, which at that point would have <laughs> sounded worse than the one in your transistor radio. This is also one of two records on this Top of the Pops mentioned in Dex's Midnight Runner's Reminisce Part 2, wrongly Whoa. dated to the summer of 1969, proving <gasps> that Kevin Rowland's, all of Kevin Rowland's reminisce in that song is obviously balls because he's completely <laughs> misremembered when these records were out no it was early 1970 so yeah oh. so much for so much for that kevin this record's a bit of a cheat because um it's basically it's a vehicle for harmony singing and this sort of precise folk accompaniment which almost fool, fools you into thinking it's a good song which it's mm. not um, the tune is totally monotonous and the lyrics are pretty soupy and it's actually quite a tribute to PPM that they managed to fashion a not unpleasant record out of it I've not heard Denver's version so I can't comment on that mm. um, I've always been bugged by this song fundamentally for one of the lyrics there's so many times I've let you down so many times I've played around I tell you now, they don't mean a thing. That seems particularly weaselly, I think. It's like Richard Pryor said, I fuck them, but I make love to you. (laughs) That always goes down to tree chaps. I think it's very petty of you, actually, to get get uptight about something which meant nothing. Like, it's very small-minded on your part. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, I'm fucking off. See ya. Yeah. I mean, the BBC have totally got the wrong end of the sticker, haven't they? Because the song is about, you know, the, the, the pain of, of leaving someone. Uh, uh, and they've got, oh, it's a song about going on a plane. Great. You know, the lyrics didn't go, I'm leaving on a jet plane. Isn't it brilliant? Look at the comfiness of this seat. Oh, look, it goes right back. There's a film on. Yeah, but, but Al, it's the power of visuals. That's the thing. When I was watching yeah. this, um, I just it, it kind of turns the song into a love song to jet planes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually quite effective. And there's a lovely moment that perhaps it's just me. Um, uh, I think there's a line in the song, isn't it? Kiss me and smile for me. Yeah. And, uh, and at that precise moment, they have just a shot of the very, very front of the plane. Yes. Almost like it's smiling. Oh, <laughs> like Jimbo and the jet set. Yeah. You know, when you're a kid and like, and maybe this is just me, but all cars have faces, don't they? Yes. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it brought that to me. And it, it, it brought me fond memories of the air show. And I just thought, what yes. to the air <laughs> yes. show? Yeah. But it's the power of black and white, I think, as well. I think if I'd seen this in colour now... Mm it would be fairly nondescript, boring, dull footage. Black and white just makes... I don't know why, but black and white just made this video into a sort of love song to jet travel. 
Um, I think they bought this footage. I don't believe the BBC sent someone up in a light aircraft to fly next to a jet and film yeah, it you out pro- the window. You're, you're <laughs> probably right. Yeah. <laughs> so the following week, leaving on a jet plane, jumped up to number two and was held off the top spot by this week's number one. However, a few months later, Peter Yarrow was convicted of taking improper liberties with a 14-year-old fan and was jailed for three months and the band split up. But in 1981, on the last day of his presidency, Jimmy Carter granted him a full pardon. They would annually reform for one-off tours and permanently reform in 1981 until Mary Travers died in 2009. so much difficulty getting those planes out of the studio. That's Peter Paul and Mary there. We want you to watch now because we're going to pick out the best dancer and we're going to judge during this one because we're going to see the kids dancing here in the studio. To the number 30 sound, the first new entry this week and the only new entry, Jackson's Five and a number called I Want You Back. Blackburn, with a load of young adults standing about behind him, announces that the kids are going to have a dancing competition. Um, one thing I want to note here is that they're not crammed round him. They're just standing listlessly about, aren't they? The idea of, um, of, of the kids huddling around the, the presenter, that we're not seeing that here, are no. we? Well, for, the, uh, for most of his links, he's uh, in front of that chroma key or what the BBC uniquely called colour separation overlay background. Yes. Uh, like quarantined away yes. from the, but, but there, yeah, he suddenly pops up in their midst and they don't seem to know quite what to make of him the other thing about, about Tony Blackburn in this is he's wearing those clothes that are almost nice but not quite what he looks yes. like is that he's mm. gone hunting for those sort of nice late 60s early 70s spy thriller clothes in charity shops but as was often the case he's only been able to find stuff that's kind of in that style but made for grannies so yeah. and I, this, you used to get this right for a start you know there's cycles in charity shops most of the clothes mm. in charity shops are from about 20 25 years prior to the current date so when i was young you go to a charity shop and it was a, it was wonderful it was like you have all these clothes from like mm-hmm. 68 to 73 and you could just look fantastic yeah, yeah. but you had to you still had to sift because there was an awful lot of these kind of cheapo uh, granny clothes in there, and you used to see a lot of would-be trendy uh, blokes walking around dressed like a sixty-five-year-old woman from nineteen seventy-four. <laughs> you know, or in those sort of, and also people forgot that, that like suede jackets and leather jackets weren't just for trendy rock and rollers. Like you'd get those ones with a front bit cut out to show your tie. I've got one of these. Yes, where it's like, yes. like a suede jacket with a sort of like a big square cut out of the front. So you can still, mm. learn, like for teachers and academics, like you see people like Dr. Bronofsky used to wear these on TV all the time. <laughs> Sybil Faulty. Yeah. I mean, what what he's wearing is he's got this kind of tweedy jacket um, and underneath he's got a, a roll neck jumper, which... Yeah, a woolly one. A woolly roll neck jumper. He must have been sweating his tits off in that yeah. studio. Under those lights. And he must have had some pretty severe love bites on that neck. <laughs> There's a sense in which the, the the audience, when you do see them with Tony, 
they don't really think he's that special. Or, or there no. isn't that. You know, later on in Top of the Pops, when you get kids next to people like David Lee Travis, Noel Edmonds, and the rest of it, they, they're almost sort of, you know, open-mouthed in awe that they're near to these people. Yes. You get no sense of that with Tony Blackburn in this episode. Um, and we'll, as we'll discuss later, the question is, are these kids or not? And what a song they're going to dance to, I Want You Back by the Jackson Five. Spawned by Joe and Catherine Jackson over the 50s in Gary, Indiana, the Jackson Five were formed on Michael Jackson's seventh birthday and were put through the local talent show mill. By 1967, they had won talent competitions at the Regal Theatre in Chicago and the Harlem Apollo and were spotted by Gladys Knight, who sent a demo tape to Barry Gordy at Motown, but he knocked them back. They eventually signed with Steel Town Records, a hometown company, and released two minor singles, Big Boy and We Don't Have to Be Over 21 in 1968. Well, that sounds a bit <laughs> ominous, doesn't it? But they were turned Heavy down... rotation on Radio 1 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but they were turned down again by Motown after an audition, but Barry Gordy changed his mind and bought them out of their Steel Town contract. In October of 1969, this song, their Motown debut, was released. Followed two months later by the debut LP, Diana Ross presents the Jackson Five. Fucking hell. Diana Ross is the David Van Day of Motown, isn't she? <laughs> it was originally considered for both Gladys Knight and Diana Ross, but was selected as the perfect introduction for the Jackson Five. It's currently the US number one single and a new entry, the highest new entry, and the only new entry this week at number 30. Well, I mean. What a fucking tune. I mean... It, yeah, it, exactly. An, an, an everlasting, undying, immortal classic that mm. will still light up any floor that you play it on. Yeah. Um, it's just a brilliant, brilliant record. And you can tell, really, it's such a strong song um, that Berry Gordy kept it for the Jackson 5. He was absolutely adamant that they were to have it and not Gladys Knight and Diana Ross. Yeah. Because anyone who was going to have that song had a monster hit on their hands. Yeah. It's just a brilliant record, top to bottom, every single aspect of it. Um, so good that you don't notice the strangeness, really, of Michael Jackson singing those lyrics um, yeah. uh, at his age at that time. And a song that, for me, pinpoints um, an emotion that, um, you know, needs writing about in songs. It's a great thing to touch upon, this sense that you've missed out on somebody. And that you're just desperate to get them back. And you had an opportunity and you blew it, which is what the first verse of the song is about. Coupled with mm. the Funk Brothers just on such amazing form um, throughout the track. It, 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 it's just, yeah. What, what can you say? It's just a solid gold classic. Is this the best debut single ever? Ooh. Mm. It's got to be up there, it's hasn't it? There. Mm. I mean, we see a lot of bands a lot of bands around this time groping around for new directions because the 60s is over and there's a lot of earnestness and a lot of sort of a sort of grim drive towards the mainstream rock 70s and all the denim and the drab hair and then this coming at the start of the decade is a sign that there is going to be another 70s mm -hmm. yeah and that Black American music is not finding it hard to reset itself for the new era. Mm. And that if you utilise all the new freedoms and new technologies just to make pop records and you don't forget what dancing really is, i.e. not waving your arms about in loon pants, <laughs> and you, you keep all the old rules that actually worked, then you can move with the times quite naturally instead of having to force it. Um... And this, yeah, this is just obviously one of the most perfectly cut, 
diamonds of the 70s, despite the fact that quite a lot of the singing is quite badly out of tune. But <laughs> mm. nobody, nobody ever mentions it because it doesn't fucking matter. So, I mean, the most danceable record ever, but look at the way these people are dancing to it. I mean, uh, uh, women must outnumber men by about 15 to 1 here. Yeah, and they, they I mean, they look fucking amazing. Um, yeah, but there's, 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 a, there's a lot of hot pants and there's a lot of stupidly short skirts that show off your drawers <laughs> if you even if, even if the wind changes you know those kind of on the buses skirts yeah yeah, this, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's actually what I've got scribbled down on this bit of paper here it says uh, impossible Carnaby Street visions of youth and beauty filmed with the utmost disrespect by a leering cameraman like Stan from On the Bus. Yes! <laughs> it is frightening. Yeah. And uh, I think this is a mixture of um, the general public and hired models and dancers. Yeah. That's yes. what it looks like to yeah. me because yeah. there's a, a really big discrepancy between the look of different people. Out yes, mm. there really is, yeah. Some of them quite clearly have just come from, you know, Boreham Wood. And then mm. there's others who have been brought in from their Kensington flats, you know. Yeah. And, and that mix is reflected in the different dancing as well. Yes. Um, the, the more yes. go-go girl type dancers you do sense with bought in for this. Um, mm. They're sort of like permanent motion machines. They have a dance, they stick with it, and they just do it. Yes. And, uh, irrespective of what the rhythm of the song is. Um, yeah. And you see certain people who are just on settings almost. Like like some of them are on doing the swim, and some of them are doing a hitchhike, and some of them are doing the hully gully and the frog and all these moves. Um, whereas... Yeah the less sort of resplendent looking people in a sense are actually dancing to the record, but you only really catch glimpses of them. What you mainly yeah. get is this array of kind of, yeah, just frogging madness that doesn't actually seem to, <laughs> to you know, coincide with the groove that's actually being laid down in the record. I think the difference is, is that some of them are, are dancing and don't give a fuck, whereas others are really aware that if they do anything a bit too frenetic, their um, their skirts are going to go up. Yeah, but they, they do, it's too late because yeah. the Top of the Pops has thoughtfully built a little gantry yes. for them to dance on so that the cameraman can stand underneath. And, yes. Uh, yeah. This is like before the word upskirt had been coined. Yes. But... That's basically what we're looking at here. Yeah. Um, yeah, the camera is a giant mirrored shoe, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you can, like, you, could, you can see the logic, right, of the fact that there's almost no men in the audience because yeah. I yeah. guess aside from the obvious letter, uh, lecherous logic, there's the fact that both sexes and sexualities and so on, pretty much everyone is happy to look at attractive young women dancing. Right? Yeah. Whereas straight men don't want to watch straight men dancing. No. Right? It's, they never have done and they never will. No. Um, but it is a little bit... Yeah, it's... Um, maybe it's just in retrospect the thought of certain other DJs on other weeks going through these people. Yeah. 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 Oh... And it has to be said that the handful of blokes there, to a man, look like fucking shit on a stick, yeah, don't they? This is what I was going <laughs> to say. Awful. It's like, th there's a there's a, a wannabe John Lennon who's yes. just starting on his beard. Yeah. Um, there's a bloke who just genuinely looks like he's wandered in from the canteen or something. He hasn't dressed <laughs> up. He hasn't no. washed his hair. Um, yeah, it's, it's the Danny from Withnail and I lookalikes. Basically, oh, God, yeah. Uh, to be honest, though, my my favourite person in the crowd is there's a a sort of a short-haired modette or proto skinhead yeah, yeah. girl 
who's yes. obviously on speed. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the rest of them are, are like, you know, healthy living or maybe they've had a little toke or something. This mm. girl is out of her face, obviously on like, you know, her mum's blues or something, <laughs> even though it's 1970. She's going crazy mm. with these yeah, bug yeah. eyes and mouth hanging. Oh, it's, she's my favourite. When you look at it is, um, when you look at episodes in, say, 66... You can see, mm. you can't see tribes as such, but you can see the mod kids and you can see certain yes. different types of kids in a sense. You don't really get that here, um, but you do no. in the peripheries. In the, uh, lo- that, that girl that Taylor's on about was particularly noticeable. Two black girls at the back are particularly noticeable as well. Um, yeah. and, and the guy, like, I mean, the guy, the, the, the guy with the tash, um, who just looks, he looks like, Der- he looks like <laughs> Derek Smalls at Spinal Tap, basically. Yes, he um, does, yeah. He, and there's one who looks like the cover of The Joy of Sex as well. <laughs> and then at the end, uh, Tony Blackbird comes on and leers into the camera and says, oh, you can get arrested for some of the moves they're making. <laughs> and I thought, no, Tony, you can get arrested for some of the moves your mates are making. <laughs> So the following week, I Want You Back soared up to number 12 and eventually got to number two, held off the top spot by Wandering Star by Lee Marvin. Fucking British people. (laughs) The follow-up, ABC, got to number eight in June of 1970. Fucking stupid British people should have been number one. And the band would have two more top ten hits in 1970 with The Love You Save and I'll Be There all of which would be number one in the USA. They stayed at Motown until 1975 until they rebranded as the Jacksons, scored their only UK number one in June of 1977 We Show You The Way To Go, and hung around throughout the 80s whenever Michael was at a loose end. They fabulous, you can get arrested for some of those movements they're doing there. I tell you, that's the new one there from Jackson 5. And right now, we've got John Lennon and Yoko out of that white bag to do their new one, which is called Instant Karma. While Look A Pie Pie by The Meters plays in the background, fucking genius song, Blackburn announces that John Lennon and Yoko Ono have climbed out of their white bags and introduces a film of instant karma by the Plastic Ono Band. Formed in 1968 when John Lennon started nobbing Yoko Ono behind his missus' back, the Plastic Ono Band was the vehicle for their collaborations and his first toe in the water for a solo career away from the Beatles. Their debut single, Give Peace a Chance, got to number two for three weeks in July of 1969, held off the top spot by Honky Tonk Women by the Rolling Stones. Instant Karma was apparently written in an hour and recorded on the same day, January the 27th, 1970, nine days before this edition of Top of the Pops, with the assistance of George Harrison, Klaus Vorman, Alan White and Billy Preston and produced by Phil Spector. This is a follow-up to Cold Turkey, which got to number 14 in November of 1969. It's not even scheduled for a release until Friday, February the 6th, the day after this episode. And there's montage footage provided by Apple Records of Lennon and Ono doing their PC pissing about thing. Now, to me, this sounds like the first song that was recorded in the 70s. Yeah, well, as soon as it comes on, 
it's like oh like your parents have just walked into the party right it's really strange it's like <laughs> only a couple of years before this was like the hottest ticket in the world and then suddenly uh, mm. after i want you back it seems so even though this is a fantastic record i mean it re it's a, an amazing single yes it is but it suddenly yeah. seems so boring that you have to put down I Want You Back and attend to the narcissism of these scruffy, junky, millionaire 30-somethings, <laughs> or nearly 30-somethings in John Lennon's case. Um, I mean, it's horrible. And the video is clips of what they were doing at the time. There's bits from the filming of Apotheosis, which is a Yoko Ono film where they put a camera in a hot air balloon and put it, sent it up into the clouds, yes. which is just another fucking interlude film but posing as art. Um, yes. And the interview that ATV did when John Lennon was Desmond Morris's choice as man of the decade, and they wonder why he went mad. Right. Um, and clip of them preparing to be interviewed <laughs> by the journalist uh, Gloria Emerson, um, which is a famous clip where she sits down with John and Yoko and tells them what most people now would tell them, that they're making fools of themselves, they're completely out of their depth, and that Lennon has thrown away the genuinely inspiring uh, message of the Beatles in favour of this sort of absurd self-righteousness and this asinine sloganeering and... Uh, furious refusal to deal in detail because he doesn't understand the detail of what he's talking about and will not sit down and learn it. Oh, wait until you are imagined, Doug. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's... and then, uh, But then, in response to this, he becomes very aggressive and says, well, I'm sorry, love, if you liked A Hard Day's Night and you want me to be cute, but I've grown up. And it's like, he's like a 14-year-old who's just got into <laughs> vegetarianism. It's really horrible because he was mad yeah. at this point he was mad it goes a bit Chris Needham doesn't it fuck you if you even think about that <laughs> yeah it really it's that kind of shit gets me down <laughs> but he was completely mad he'd broken his brain um, in 66 67 from too much LSD and he was mm. never psychologically stable again this is like uh, you don't have to go to a sort of embroidered rubbish like the Goldman book for that this is more or less common knowledge among serious Beatles fans who mm. uh, don't treat it as a religion, you know, mm. and are grown up, grown up and realistic. Mm. I mean, yeah, he he was never quite right again. It's 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 sad, but when you see this kind of narcissistic sanctimony coupled with the relatively low intelligence, or rather the <laughs> low level of actual understanding and knowledge of the world, because although he was naturally bright mm. and obviously had. Uh, an incredible imagination he didn't really know very much John Lennon he wasn't educated mm. and he had a sort of a, a psychedelic incuriosity about facts and detail like he's only got his cock out on the cover of Two Virgins because Yoko asked him to count up to 11 it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's, there's a lot of a lot of rubbish talked about John Lennon, not not least by uh, Yoko Ono. That whole John and Yoko myth, which is mm. just bollocks. Their marriage was basically dead by 1973. It's just a load of crap to promote the brand, you know. Um, mm. I mean, I'm talking about you know one of my childhood heroes here, but mm -hmm. you know, it's it's important to get yeah. these things kick over the statues, Taylor. Well, yes, quite. <laughs> Neil, good song though, isn't it? 
It's a fucking great song, and and of course, I mean, it, it, I'd say it's great. It's a great record. Mm. It's it, 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 it the production on it, Phil Spector's production on it, the kind of fifties slapback echo he puts on everything, mm. and the big drums. I think you, you're absolutely right in saying it sounds like the first one that feels like it's part of the seventies, and perhaps I mean I don't think it was a direct influence, but in in that sense of of a slight fifties throwback to it, there's there's a sort of mm. T Rexness to this record. Um, that I've, that I've yeah. always liked, and you know, Slade were listening to this and going, "Oh, way up." Maybe so, maybe so. Yeah, yeah, and you can you can bet it was a direct influence on Bolan as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, it's, it's always been um, a surprising and sort of startling sounding record for what I mean, Phil Spector did, and then I suppose this was the audition to get Phil Spector on the Let It Be album. Um, so, yes. but like, like I say, I mean, as ever with any of Lennon's work, you have to kind of balance the musical pleasures you can get with the fact that he's just an utterly sort of terrible, not terrible human being, that's a bit harsh, but um, difficult to stomach, let's put it that way, the sanctimony, as Taylor was mentioning. Mm. But I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, when it all comes down, I mean, it's like how many people in pop groups are, uh, are that smart or that good, you know? I mean, mm. it's for, for all I talk about this sort of, you know, feel-good, solipsistic, uh, degraded, uh, dishonest idea of radicalism. You know, this sort of it, which led directly to the intellectual and moral degeneracy of the. I mean, I sound like William F. Buckley. You know what I mean? <laughs> Basically, when when John Lennon opens his mouth and sings the chorus on this record, who you know, who gives a fuck? It's it's amazing. But the actual f- the actual film. I mean, you'd sooner what you'd sooner want to see him with a band there, wouldn't you? This song, "Instant Karma," would always turn up on John Lennon best ofs as the year went as the years went by, and I was I'm, mm. I was surprised as a teenager to learn that the Beatles are still sort of extant at this time when this song came out. Um, yeah. For me, this was almost like you know one of the first of his solo ones, and consequently the time that the Beatles are over. So it's kind of a surprise also yeah. in the video to see Paul McCartney appear because he is in there, isn't yes. he? Yes, somewhere. What was the? Have you seen the full length of the film of the balloon trip, Taylor? Does it get any better yeah. than the brief few snippets that we see here? No, it gets worse because <laughs> it's, it starts off. <laughs> yes. The balloon is in this uh, nice little market town near his house, um, and then it takes off, and then you just see clouds for about you know for the duration of the yeah. film. It's not that interesting. It's only like we were saying the magic of that Peter Paul and Mary clip, where most people hadn't been on an aeroplane so it was quite interesting to look at most people hadn't been up in the sky so mm. you know they might want to look at some clouds for a bit um but <laughs> no by the way I, if you uh, put this on the video playlist right if anyone needs to know anything about john and yoko from this period and and what a complete disaster and a, an insult to the intelligence they were there's a clip on YouTube which I think is titled John and Yoko Look Tired During Interview, which is them <laughs> being interviewed by like a German or a Dutch film crew or something on the set of Let It Be. So it'll be about a year mm-hmm. before this. Mm. Um, at, so they were having lots of fun yeah, there. Yeah, and they're out of their faces on smack. And halfway through, John <laughs> Lennon has to go off and puke. Um, and it's... I. 
I can't do it justice. You just have to watch it. The the <laughs> the, the sub needemness of it is mm. is beyond belief. No <laughs> offense, Chris, if you're listening, but you know you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like kids. They're like kids, you know. But but mm. but kids who, who certainly in Lenin's case, who've spent the last ten years being told they're the king of the fucking universe, you know. It's horrible mm. to watch. Horrible just to watch a, a a a rotting brain. What's also kind of odd, I mean, the time frame that you mentioned, Al, that this, I mean, this is nine days after it was recorded, um, you know, yeah. and it's released ten days after it's recorded. That's staggering, really. I mean, yeah. I, I know now we're used to contracts tracks perhaps being released on the day that they're recorded, but mm. at that time, and they sound like it. Yeah, they do sound like it. And that's possibly what's good about them. But you know, you just. You just think a cumbersome industry that takes time, 10 days, yeah. um, that is, uh, I'm not saying impressive, but um, it, it, it's startling how quick they got that record out there. I mean, especially for something that just still does sound electrifying. Well, it's amazing what you can do when you own the record company and <laughs> your word yes. is the word of God. Yeah. Yeah. And you've laid off the smack for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is him making a power move, isn't it? Yeah. As far as the... the t- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Television audience of the day will be concerned that the Beatles are still a thing. Mm. Yeah, they only, they only exist on paper. But what's quite interesting is mm. um, after the Beatles have effectively stopped recording as a band, um... My, really, John and Yoko have been off making those kind of charlatan avant-garde albums where they, it really mm. is just a load of stupid noises, you know. And Paul McCartney's mm. off recording his solo album and yeah. he's just got the four-track the, the, uh, four or eight-track machine or whatever it is in his front room and he's just doing na, 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 the lovely Linda and all this sort of <laughs> stuff. And, and he's not taking it seriously. But what's really funny is then instant instant karma comes. I mean, Cold Turkey had been out before, but Cold Turkey is not a commercial record. It's no. an amazing record, but it's not really a pop song as such. It's, it's obviously quite challenging and stuff. But then instant karma comes out and uh, suddenly McCartney goes, oh, right, yeah, I'd better record Maybe I'm Amazed. And he goes into Abbey Road <laughs> Studios and uh, does a couple of tracks for his first solo album uh, that are recorded properly and are um, fucking amazing. Um, and it's mm. like, yeah, Paul, you know, if you just tried that bit harder for the whole album, it might not have been <laughs> such crap. I mean... What I'm familiar with with Instant Carver was not this video. It was the Top of the Pops appearances that presumably were actually the week after. That's right. Where, jo- where John is kind of freshly shorn, isn't he? He's got a short yes. haircut. Yeah. Um, so Top of the Pops, still not too big, to, or still not irrelevant to the Beatles or, or former Beatles. 
The following week, while it was still outside the charts, Lennon and Ono played the song in the Top of the Pop studio, the first live appearance by any Beatle of Top of the Pop since 1966 and Paperback Writer. The week after that, it entered the charts at number seven and nudged up to number five, its highest position. Two months later, the Beatles split up and the Plastic Ono Band LP was released in November. The follow-up single to Instant Karma, Power to the People, got to number seven in April of 1971. You under the Plastic Ono Band, there are a genuine pair of kneecap warmers. Are those the sort of things you wear down Carnaby Street? You don't think so? I think they're absolutely magnificent. Anyway, we're going to have much more music for you right now. And I'm going to call all, everything I've got. And this, of course, comes from Billy Preston. camera zooms in on the knees of a female audience member wearing a pair of woolly bands with the letter T stitched into them. Blackburn asks her if they're the sort of thing she wears on Carnaby Street. She says no. Looking suitably <laughs> chastised, he introduces All That I've Got by Billy Preston. Born in Houston in 1946, Billy Preston was a self-taught organist who joined Little Richard's band at the age of 16, where he first met the Beatles in Hamburg in the early 60s. After joining Sam Cooke's band and releasing the solo LP's 16-year-old soul and the most exciting organ ever, he became a member of Ray Charles's band. In 1969, while the Beatles were in disarray over the recording of the Let It Be LP, George Harrison linked up with Preston after a Ray Charles gig and invited him over to Abbey Road to help them finish the LP off. He was part credited with the Beatles on the Get Back single, the only non-Beatle to bag a credit on an official Beatle release. This is the follow-up to That's The Way God Planned It, which got to number 11 in August of 1969. It was only released six days ago on Apple Records, so it's not in the chart. As we've seen, Billy Preston played on Instant Karma, so do you think this appearance is, is part of a deal to get John Lennon on top of the pops? Probably a tie-in, yeah, in some regard. Um, it, it's a, the only way of explaining it, because, I mean, it's, for me, it's a fairly mediocre record. Mm. I, I, I didn't know that he played with Ray Charles, but that explains a lot, because this is ultimately a Ray Charles tune. It sounds like a Ray Charles tune. It um, is. But just slightly funked up. Yes. Um, Billy Preston for me means little apart from not actually his work with the Beatles, but um, the stuff he plays on Stones records at the time. Yeah. He plays on Sticky Fingers, he's on Can't You Hear Me Knocking, and he's on um, I Got the Blues. He plays some great stuff on those things. Um, mm. my, my, the only moment to be salvaged from this for me, because it's fairly dull, was. Um, the moment where he steps to the mic and he steps away from the keyboard and he does yeah. some kind of cod J James Brown moves. He yeah, does funky chicken and he does a few I, other I, things. I think the term is socking it to him, Neil. <laughs> that's right, that's right, sorry. The correct terminology. But um, yeah, that was a great moment, other than that fairly dull, I think. Yeah, it's got it, it's sort of straining for the same euphoria as the Jackson 5, but it's much more trad and churchy. So mm. it just doesn't seem vital and modern. But at least we get a performance. I mean, he, he puts yes. in a, a hell of a... I mean, yeah. his massive chicken dance, which just comes out yes. of nowhere. <laughs> and it's like, 
Also, it, it was nice to see him leave his instrument for the last 30 seconds and have yeah. that little cavort, because it's like the drummer out of imagination when he used to come yes, out. Yes, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, it's hard to know what to say about this record because it's just what it is. It's a very straight uh, sort of pop gospel type song. And it's yeah, effective, but it doesn't do anything unusual and it doesn't really no. let loose at any point, which is the same problem as a lot of stuff on Apple. If you listen to pretty much mm -hmm. everything that was released on Apple, it's all quite slick and proficient, but um, none of it's really very remarkable. It's like the as A&R men, the Beatles didn't really have a clue. No, I mean, there's nothing here that Georgie Fame couldn't have done, really, is there? Apart from the chicken dance. But it's, <laughs> but it's, sort of, yes. it, it's not... Yeah dislike or it's sort of because Billy Preston's sunny personality does kind of come across you know what I mean it's, yeah. his personality yeah. so mm. sunny that he could walk into the Let It Be sessions and, and make the Beatles smile yes. you know? in fact he, <laughs> he kept that sunny personality right up until he was arrested for sexual assault in the early 1990s <laughs> yeah I mean the, the, the only other effect on this performance is that there's some kind of chroma key uh, on the on the keyboard, yeah. making it look like he's caged some girls yeah. underneath yeah. it. That bit looked great. You just see some legs. That bit looked absolutely great. You just see like, yeah, yeah. Not mm. decapitated, but sort of people cut in half, basically, reflecting in the bottom of his keyboard. Yes. But ultimately, it, it's a record made by a musician. And I think that's what's most dull about it. And it seems really out of place in 1970, even though it's early 1970. Well, I mean, in comparison to the Jackson 5 that we've heard earlier, it sounds impossibly dated. So the following week, and for every week since, all that I've got failed to make the charts. <laughs> it would just fail to make the top 40 again with Outer Space in September of 1972, and he wouldn't make the charts again until January of 1980, when he got to number two with With You, I'm Born Again with Cyrita, and Billy Preston died in 2006, and yeah, all the things that Taylor said earlier. <laughs> Again, we go straight into the next song, which is Hitchin' a Ride by Vanity Fair. Formed in Rochester in 1966, the Avengers recorded demos with Joe Meek before changing their name to the Sages and then Vanity Fair, spelt F-A-R-E. Their debut single, a cover of the Stingrays' I Live for the Sun, got to number 20 in October of 1968, and after two flop singles, they got to number 8 in August of 1969 with Early in the Morning. This is a follow-up to that song, and it's up from number 23 to number 16. Gentlemen, comment. I vacillate between sort of liking it, almost loving it, for it's got an odd scar kind of feel, an almost reggae thing because of the chop mm. of the guitar. And I like the Beach Boys yeah. type harmonies as well. But I, there was something in the performance that made me resent it slightly. And that was just the amount of smirking that was going <clears> on. <throat> um, as if this yes. pop froth was kind of beneath Vanity Fair. They're happy to have a hit, but you know mm. they kind of wanted to, it to be known that they were they're slightly taken mm. and pissed. Intrigued also by the, the lead singer appears to be wearing a pinafore dress. Um, uh, yes. Did... Yeah, the outfits are horrible. I wonder what colour mm. they were. I think... Um, a, Tangerine yeah, yeah. or something. Born. Yeah. 
And not for the first time, there's also a lot of choice sort of uh, black onyx signet rings. Yes. Um, being displayed as well. The recorder presumably being there because they heard Manfred Mann do it on mic. Well, and they yes. That would be a good idea. Um, so I'm not sure, again, like, like with the Barry, um, what was his name? Barry Ryan. Barry Ryan tune. Can't figure out if I like this or not. No, I don't. There's a lot of this stuff hanging around in sort of late 60s, early 70s, filling a space, you know. Yeah. Uh, in between 60s pop and glam. It's bands that aren't quite proper bands. Either yes. because they're session men put together or because they're just a bit creepy and mm. sort of sub rock and white bread. But this is no Love Grows. It's no Son of My Father. It's no. not even a mouldy old doe. It's sort no, of. Certainly it's, not. It's sports and social club music. You know what I mean? It certainly is, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Played by, mm. yeah, played by mm. some geeks. Like it's, this is what serious rock fans and jazz heads and classical music buffs think all pop music is. Mm. Um, and the singer has that same worried smile as the lead singer out of Shawaddy Waddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, yes. sort of, that kind of, <laughs> sort of smile. And they're dressed like a church band. And I don't, hitching a ride, you know, hitching a ride, is it got that sort of like funky sort of boho connotations? It's like, yeah. these, no, you hitching a ride is, is not something these people have ever done. Yeah, you, you wouldn't hitch a ride this close to the middle of the road. It's just, yeah, they're, <laughs> uh, nice. They're, they're, <laughs> no, they're, they're horrible, really. I mean, and also, why is it spelt Vanity Fair, F A R E? It's one of those things where you think, well, is this a, there doesn't seem to be a pun or anything. No. So you remember that group, Manson in the 90s. Yes. Where it was like Manson, but with M A N S U N. Yeah. It was like, did they just not know how to spell it? Is this just a mistake? Because otherwise, what? what I don't know. Oh, yeah, and also, I mean, this, is, this song is co written by, in fact, it's one of two songs on this Top of the Pops, co written by the imbecile who wrote How Do You Do It? The rich imbecile who wrote yes. How Do You Do It for. Uh, well, for the Beatles, or, or well, no, for whoever, but it yeah. wasn't the Beatles, and they turned it down, and Jerry and the Pacemakers did it. Yeah. And he's, he really. You're talking about Mitch Murray here, hack. aren't we? Mitch Murray, yeah. Uh, ultra hack, yeah. Mm. Never, never wrote a note worth whistling, you know. Yeah. A thumb goes up, a car goes mm. by, it's nearly 1 a.m., and here am I, hitching a ride, hitching a ride. He's essentially, he wants to get over to his missus. You know, transport links in Rochester. Yeah. People have horses. <laughs> but, um, I, I mean, Social Club, you you were right there, Taylor. I was I was reaching for Opportunity Knox Band. Yeah, oh, yeah, that too. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, matching uniforms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. During a time when yeah. matching uniforms had gone out of fashion. Yeah, and you can imagine them auditioning for the committee. You yes. Know what I mean? It's very... <laughs> Very much like that. So the following week, Hitch and Arrive dropped four places to number 20, haha, <laughs> but then jumped back up to number 16 the following week, but no further. After two more singles that failed to make the UK charts, they concentrated on the European market and fell apart in 1975. Thumbs down. <laughs> Hitching a ride, and that of course comes from Vanity Fair. Okay, here's a lovely record. It's centered at number 25 this week from Judy Collins. It's called Both Sides Now, and here to dance to it, the lovely Pans People. 
Blackburn, superimposed on uh, chroma key again, introduces Pan's people as they dance to Both Sides Now by Judy Collins. Born in Seattle in 1939, Judy Collins spent the 60s as a folk singer with a reputation for introducing her lesser-known peers to international attention, being one of the first singers to cover Leonard Cohen, Randy Newman and Joni Mitchell. Both Sides Now, the first commercially recorded version of the Joni Mitchell song, was actually recorded in 1967, and when it was released in the US in 1968, it became a top 10 hit and won the Grammy for Best Folk Performance in 1969. As she's not knocking about in the country at the moment, Pan's people have been drafted in for this song, which is up from number 28 to number 25. Song or dance routine, chaps? I've got little to say about the song, to be honest with you. Dance routine, mm. however, I have got something to say. Well, <laughs> should we start with should we start with the song then, and then move on to the important? <laughs> <thing>? Yes, <laughs> let's. All female sung Joni Mitchell covers are like all male sung Dylan covers mm. in that they're softer and worse, and somehow seem to be missing part of the point. Mm. Even if the person doing the singing was uh, was perfectly clued into what was going on, they, it, it just doesn't capture what was on the original. The only one who could ever pull it off with Joni Mitchell was Sandy Denny, who does a very convincing "I Don't Know Where I Stand" on the Radio Sessions album. Right. She, Sandy Denny had interesting things of her own to say, so she didn't bother doing it anymore. But um, yeah, it's weird. This record, it's got that tinkling music box folk rock backing that you get on a lot of old Electra Records stuff yeah. from the late 60s. Like it's on the first Tim Buckley albums and some Monkeys stuff as well and Stone Ponies and it's a very 60s sound and it's like as Joni Mitchell herself prepared to reflect and define the 1970s this seems like a record that's stuck in a in a recent but suddenly very distant past. But it's a three year old uh, song isn't it almost? Yeah, and it's not one of her best... Joni Mitchell's one of those people where her best-known songs are among her worst, yeah. you know. Yeah. Mm. Uh, big Yellow Taxi. This one and, yeah, Big Yellow Taxi and this one. It's not really what she's all about. There's a sort of tweeness of expression. Um, and really, it was as soon as she dropped that tweeness of expression that uh, the real stuff started to happen. Yeah, a Joni Mitchell cover... I mean, it's essentially pointless because it's not got Joni Mitchell on it. And... It's Joni's toughness that's crucial to sort of uh, the enjoyment of her music. So this is uh, this is lacking that. And um, I mean, it's, it's an all right song, but she would go on to make much better ones. Donald Trump's completely fucked this song now, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, less of that nonsense. Come on, let's talk about this performance. Yeah, we've got Pan's people looking like most of my primary school teachers. And they've got <laughs> floral maxi dresses and brown leather Victorian knee boots which is uh, really mm. popular, looks slightly ahead of its time in fact because... Uh, uh, even though it's in black and white you know they're brown don't yeah, you? Yeah, although it loses quite a lot from being in black and white because when you look at the intricacy of the greys in, in those patterned mm. clothes and the backdrop, you know but then that yes. would have been 85-90% of the audience watching in black and white That's and right. It's a bit of a fuck you you know... It is, isn't it? I mean, I've got down that it looks like a catwalk <laughs> show for the latest Laura Ashley collection. Yeah. There's a lot of flouncing about in, in dresses that cover up, you know, the things that the dads want to see. Dads have been let down big time here, <laughs> haven't they? They have been a bit. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, but then again, you know, just looking at the audience, I mean, I, I think I think there's been a lot of dadisfaction this uh, this episode. I would argue that they're actually midi dresses. I don't think they're maxi dresses. Oh, but, midi um, maxi. What's the fucking difference? When you look at this, it looks like a load of mums. It looks like a load of uh, sort of our mums. But you know, those dresses were it. it uh, the only thing I could claim for them is that, in a sense, women who wore those dresses at the time were separating themselves off from their mums because their mums would have still been in twin set and pearls yeah. and stuff like that. So, yeah, or, or mini skirts. <laughs> but I think you can draw a direct line from this to um, Country Diary of an Edwardian Lady. Of course, you have to wait until 1977 for that, but it has a little touch. Yeah, I mean, one thing worth noting here, Pants People are six-handed in this one because Flick Colby's currently in the role of player manager, isn't she? Oh, really? Ah, which one's Flick? I don't know. The, so the one in the long dress. She's one of the... <laughs> it all seems quite benign uh, because, you know, they're all kind of like proper young girls about town, but there's something about this sort of weird uh, oldie Englishness that... If this was happening out in the country, you'd start to get a little bit nervous. Do you know what I mean? You start to feel mm. like Edward Woodward mm. dressed as a policeman. It's yes, yes, you would. Yes. <laughs> Frighteningly looking for the salmon of knowledge. <laughs> but it's, it, yeah, it, it, but as I say, yeah, watching this in black and white is completely pointless because it's like a riot of grey. I bet if this was in colour, it'd be like a Stan Brackage film, if that means anything to you. Just, yes. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, but yeah, as it is, and you feel a bit cut off from mm, it. Mm, mm. Yeah, and the actual routines just, just like a load of mums, kind of like walking about themselves, waiting for the kids to be chucked out of school, isn't it? Yeah, but then all all coming together in a circle, as though uh, you know Edward Woodward's in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> yes, very. Yeah, I didn't. Well, there is a bit of that appeal to yeah that that folksiness, that kind of rural England sense. I mean, maybe it was just my school being odd. But did you ever do? It probably was just my school being up. Did you? Were you ever taught? Um, we had lessons in barn dancing at my school. Yeah, country dancing. <laughs> right. yeah. What? Yeah. We had lessons in barn dancing, and of course nobody wanted to do them because it involved touching girls. I mean, we were young. What I mean by that is, obviously, if we were fifteen or something, that'd be a different kettle of fish. But we. How old were you at the time? I think I was about nine or ten. Right, and what so, was it about the West Midlands that thought that kids of that age needed to know about barn dancing? I think, I think personally, it was tied in with a sort of vague hippiness that also gave birth to things like the woodcraft folk and things like that. Right, a kind of a, a kind of attempt to kind of recover things that they felt were being lost. But yeah, inexplicably, every week for about uh, an hour. We did barn dancing in a, in a, in our school hall. <laughs> this is what it's reminding me of. Yeah, yeah. With us, it was called country dancing, and it would alternate with uh, music and movement. You know. Which yeah, we did a, music yeah, and movement. Tend to be a tree and all that. You know? Yeah, we were we were more progressive than your lot. It's just all all dreamt <laughs> up by teachers with a CND sticker on the back of their Volkswagen <laughs> Beetle. You know what I mean? That atom atom craft nine dank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I can remember of this was um, we did a, a play or something one summer when I was about eight which involved a chimp's tea party, and it was to the, the medley of Irish folk music by Steel Eye Span. Can't remember what <laughs> it was called. And we and, and they got about, there was about eight kids doing it, but they only had about four monkey masks. But luckily, <laughs> the local Texaco garage was doing a promotion where if your dad bought a couple of gallons of petrol, you get this really thin card Planet of the Apes mask. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so you'd have you'd have these kids looking like soldiers in Planet of the Apes, dancing around, pretending to drink tea out of the pot. <laughs> but yeah, seventies were a very fucking strange time, weren't they? You want the abs to do musical movement lessons now? I mean, no. the start as the dress code for those. I, I just remember doing those lessons in my vest and pants. Oh yeah, 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 vest yeah, and pants. Yeah, yeah. But so at some point in the seventies. Being in vest and pants went from being an expression of freedom to a to a punishment. Yeah, because because forgetting your kit was a, a <laughs> prior to that had been a, a way of getting out of games. That's all it was. We need to return to vest and pants being you know a, a, an instrument of self expression, but not for me because I'm too old for that shit and I look fucking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week both sides now would nudge up to number 23 and would get as high as number 14 the follow up a cover of Amazing Grace would get to number 5 in February of 1972 and spent 42 weeks in the top 40 and her final chart appearance came in 1975 when her cover of Sending the Clowns got into number 6 she also uh, had a turbulent affair with Stephen Stills yes Collins. Yeah, yes she that did. was fun yeah. He he seems like a nice man, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> Okay, about a couple of weeks ago, the uh, very first dance contest winner was Cheryl Vernon. Here she is dancing to this lovely record. not cramming any women into his face as would be the style in future episodes of Top of the Pops, announces that the winner of a previous dancing competition, Cheryl Vernon, is going to do a turn for us in the following film, described by Blackburn as this lovely record. It's actually called Wedding Bell Blues by the Fifth Dimension. Formed in Los Angeles in 1965 and originally called The Versatiles, The Fifth Dimension were a vocal group who were produced by Bones Howe, backed by The Wrecking Crew and recorded songs written by Jimmy Webb and Burt Bacharach. It wasn't until 1967 that they broke the American charts with the Jimmy Webb song Up, Up and Away, which got to number one in America, but they did nothing here until May of 1969 when they got to number 11 with a mashup of Aquarius and Let the Sun Shine In from the musical Hair. This song, which was number one for three weeks in America in November of 1969, is a cover of a 1966 Laura Nairo tune. Coincidentally, the singer of this version, Marilyn McCoo, is engaged to fellow band member Billy Davis. So, from Dad Disappointment, I think, I think you know, the balance has been restored in this, hasn't it? Taylor, would you like to describe this film to us? Yeah, well, first of all, before it starts, there's a girl sat next to Tony Blackburn who's either been at her mum's Mandrax or is looking <laughs> yes. out for Apollo 13. <laughs> yes. Because it's, I've never seen anything like it. Or she's just trying to zone out Tony Blackburn. But she still seems happier than the girl who's won the dancing competition yes. and got to have her own film of her dancing on top of the pop. Yeah. Because she seems so pissed off to, to be having to do this. It might just be that she's got a sulky face or yeah. she's trying to follow the rule that beauty shouldn't smile. You she's know, a bit posh but... spice, isn't she, this girl? Oh, uh, yeah. Cheryl. 
very sulky. I mean, a lot of it is just a projection of a publicity shot of the fifth dimension onto her naked, undulating stomach. Yes. Um, possibly because they couldn't get her to look anything other than like a slapped ass. Um, <laughs> the best bit is when <laughs> is when there's a thing of like it's it's a shot of her lying on her back, filmed from above, mm-hmm. with stuff moving around her face. It's basically it's like the video to Sledgehammer. Yes. Um, sort of fifteen <laughs> years early, but. Um, it's. It just looks like someone with a fan blowing flower petals all over them. But she hates it. Yeah, you she really her does. Face going she like, really oh, does. But what's this? These things going in my eyes. What is this? Oh. I mean, she can dance and she looks good, but she's not Ms. Charisma. And yeah, it's it, the whole thing's a bit depressing. Uh, the bit when the. The bit when the petals are flying on her face and they reverse it, don't they? There's a bit where there's a bit where it goes backwards. A bit like the opening credits of Tomorrow's World, but with a kind of like a, a Dave Lee Travis style beard and hairstyle of, of flowers. And <laughs> they turn a fucking industrial fan on her, don't they? They do. The reverse bits work though. They work like a sort of modularly Valentine video or something like that. <laughs> yes, but, uh, but really actually, do. I mean, Taylor mentioned earlier Stan Brackage, was it? That, um, yeah. you know, a name I didn't, I actually have that written down here <laughs> for this because it knows odd coincidence, but it again, a moment of just, I'm not saying they're creating any great artistic work here, but just, yeah, just giving them five minutes to be experimental. I don't think we'd ever see that again later mm. on the top of the pops yeah. um, mm. to be like this. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, even imagining this in two years time on top of the pops, you cannot imagine it. It wouldn't happen. In two no. years, you know, even in, in in about a year's time or something, Mitt Rock will make the video for Life on Mars, which mm. is an amazing video, and it's it's not similar to this, but it's a load of close-up shots of Bowie looking astonishing. And Top of the Pops refused to screen it because it was just a bit too unsettling. And yet, a matter <laughs> of a year before this, which is unsettling, actually, it's, way, it's because, floral bukkake, isn't it? Well, yeah, because <laughs> of her unfriend, her she she liked. Taylor said she just looks really pissed off, unfriendly. Yeah, and uh, it gives it a really odd vibe. I think uh, this... you can see why you can see why Bill is, uh, as in the song, is a little bit reluctant to to tie the knot. <laughs> um... Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, she's but standing the... outside a church wearing a wedding veil, a crop top, uh, a pair of drawers with a fringy belt, and uh, you, you know, um, standard issue um, go-go white boots. Uh, and she's she's basically got two bunches of flowers and she's just madly waving them around <laughs> with a face like a smacked ass. I mean, it is the kind of outfit that, I don't know, you can imagine George Best's wedding looking a bit like this. <laughs> and you can imagine her having that very same expression after she got married to George Best and he fucked off, you know, making a big pyramid of uh, champagne glasses or, yeah. you know, shagging anything that moved. The whole thing would have been massively transformed if she'd have cracked a smile. But it's yeah. a massive hostility to the universe that comes across. Yeah. <laughs> That's the most palpable thing you get. I, I find that quite yeah. attractive in women, though. I've got to admit, yeah. Yeah, that sort of dead-eyed <laughs> contempt yeah. for, for whoever is pointing a camera at them or whoever yeah. is staring at them. Um, yeah, it's a good thing. It, it works. Yeah. But it's still preferable to the actual the actual official video for this song. Mm. Is is that band Fifth Dimension yeah. on a stage like an Ed Sullivan type stage? Yes, it was, and, and it was Ed Sullivan as well. Ah, uh, right, I see. And and the singer is singing this song at the Bill, who's mentioned, who, like you say, was in the band. The rest of yeah. the band haven't got anything to do, so that what they have to do. 
for the entire song's duration is stand around doing that, hey, what's going on? Yes. <laughs> just kind of yes. moving their arms about vaguely. So preferable yes. to that, but still a very strange little artefact. Yeah, and one thing that needs to be mentioned, that obviously she won the dancing competition two weeks before, so the following week they decided to pick this song uh, to make a film about, and uh, in the interim period the song's actually dropped down uh, two places <laughs> in the charts. No, three places. It's gone down from uh, number 25 to number 28. So, um, yeah, let's talk about the song. I think this song's fucking brilliant. Yeah. I love it. I've never heard it before, and it's like, this is fucking all right, this I is. I actually like this version a bit more than the Laura Nero original, because it's... Yes. Uh, oh, I said her name wrong, didn't I? Laura yeah, Nero. I did for years. I, I only found out about a year ago that it's not... Oh, well, there we go, then. We'll I only keep found out just now. <laughs> Thanks, Taylor. Oh, man. <laughs> I think... Mission to explain, people. I think I like this version more, because it's... Even though the fifth dimension are kind of horrible... Uh, because it's less, yeah. it's less self-aware, and it is what uh, her version is trying to be, you know, which is like a sort of a commercial soul track. Um, I mean, I wouldn't yeah. have liked to have heard them having a go at Poverty Train or you know a lot of her other songs, <laughs> but I think they do this a little bit better than she does. Um, this is also incidentally yeah. the second of those records mentioned in the Dex's Midnight Runners song. Uh, uh-huh. That sweet record, Wedding Bell Blues. Oh, lovely. I mean, to to me, my knowledge of the fifth dimension is Up, Up and Away, uh, which which was essentially Sly and the Family Stone for Knicks and voters. <laughs> uh, but this, I think, is 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 extremely decent pop. Yeah, it's a great it's a great song by by Laura Nero. Um, yeah, and, Nero. Uh, I, I think. All right, I see. I think this is their third Lauren. Laura, I'm going to say Nairo. I'm sorry, it's force of habit. Yeah. The third one by I've never properly investigated her because I hear such great things about New York Tenderberry and other albums, and mm. I think I had um, one of her albums on vinyl, but I've never properly dug her out. What should I listen to, Taylor? Yeah, well, uh, it, she a lot of her stuff. It, she she developed a lot. Her early her early records are kind of like this, like uh, mm. a little bit more sort of. Uh, like a neurotic Carol King, you know, and then yeah, by the time you yeah, get yeah. to like New York Tenderberry, it's sort of spaced out a bit. Like a lot of female singer songwriters, even uh, were sort of um, following Joni Mitchell in that thinking, oh wow, mm. you can you know you can spread out a bit and do something yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. a bit more individualistic and a bit a bit weirder. Um, mm. yeah, she's she's not one of my absolute favourites, but I think I think you'd really like her. Yeah. Okay. Do you think Pants People are bit fucked off about this development <laughs> I, I think they they with their perma smiles they're going to be looking at this thing and this is not competition so the following week wedding bell blues jumped back up to number 16 its highest position well done cheryl but it was the last hit they'd have in the uk and the band eventually split up in 1975 when marilyn McCoo and billy davis now married went off on their own and they'd have a number seven hit in april of 1977 with you don't have to be a star
once again we go straight into the next tune, By Tomorrow by Sandy Shaw. Born in Dagenham in 1947, Sandra Goodrich was a part-time model who was spotted by Adam Faith at a charity event and signed to Pie Records in 1964. Her debut single flopped, but the second, a cover of Always Something There to Remind Me, got to number one in October of 1964. She scored another number one in June of 1965 with Long Live Love and after a series of diminishing returns, jumped on the Eurovision bandwagon in 1967 with Puppet on a String, which she won and got a third number one with it. After a number six hit in April in 1969 with Monsieur Dupont, her chart career was on the wane again. And this single is the follow-up to Think It All Over, which only got to number 42 in May of 1969. I mean, the first thing I noticed as the camera panned in is that one of the blokes has, has decided to um, have a go at chatting up some of the uh, ladies there, and he's... As is the norm in Top of the Pops, he's having no luck at all, is he? Yeah, good luck with that. They look a bit business class, those... Uh, those yes. <laughs> so this song, I mean, Sandy Shaw, I mean, the first thing that sprang to mind, seeing her uh, her rig out, Flake Advert Gypsy. She looks like one of the hippies in Carry On Camping. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's she really terrible. does. terrible. This thrown together... like, And the, all the girls in the audience, like, you know, the punters, mm. are wearing this really on-the-money stuff for yeah. early mm. 1970. Like, they've got these 20s styles that were in or those amazing sort of sex kit and go-go outfits. Mm. Then Sandy comes on and she looks like a hippie from like a a, ni- a sitcom from 1982. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Just this sort of <laughs> really, really bad. Like poor, Ken's poor girlfriend Sam. in uh, Citizen Smith or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I like the, I like a scarf. That's got a kind the scarf on her head. That's got a kind of Bieber look to it. But yeah. everything else, yeah, everything else is a bit of Tara Ben Tovin for me. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But I was intrigued that as to what people thought about this song because do you mean us or I, people in general you 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 two well um, because I I I liked it mm. and, and I've got a feeling I might be on my own here I, I kind of thought it had a nice sort of it's obviously going for that kind of dusty Springfield oh, I was gonna, kind of you thing. bastard I was going to say sorry, that sorry man but it's going for that not entirely <laughs> yeah, it successfully it is I, it, I, is a, it is it is a Mitch Murray tune but I, I kind of liked it I'm intrigued mm. to know why you don't like it if you don't like well, it well my first impression was mm, somebody's been listening to Dusty in Memphis <laughs> Yeah, very but much. Again, it's the you know. I mean, I remember the first chart music we did, and Cellar Black was on, and uh, we were talking about you know all these kind of like British female sixties icons having a really tough time of it in the seventies, and I think we can already see it here. Two months into the new decade, Sandy Shaw's like, oh God, I've got to evolve, I've got to mature, and what we're hearing here is two Ronnies pop isn't it yeah i think the problem with it uh, all our early singles have got that coldness and starkness that you got in a british studio in those days yeah and it really works for them but yeah she was trying to move with the times you know dusty went to memphis and she could pull it off because she yeah. had the voice for it yeah but mm. first of all sandy's voice isn't really suited to this music it's suited to that brassy yeah kind of british music um and secondly, this is very audibly not recorded in Memphis. Yeah. This yes. is a bunch of British session men in pie studios. <laughs> Dusty in Mansfield. To... <laughs> yeah, he's trying to sound soulful and groovy, but 
you know, instead of playing that sort of mod schlager, which is what her early stuff is. Yeah. And yeah, it doesn't come off at all. The one good thing on this record is the bass line, which is these sort of grinding cogwheels mm. of this very sort of uh, very loud in the mix, harsh bass line. But mm. yeah, it's. Uh, it's all right, but it's yeah, it's yeah. an it's a nice enough song, but it's 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 not fit for top of the pops. No, possibly not. I mean, the thing is, this is a problem with female artists of that era. They, the the women that came up in the early seventies were all American singer songwriters. Yeah, and your your Dusty Springfields and your Cella Blacks and your Sandy Shores are, are reliant on songwriters. Yeah, and Sandy fell between two stools a bit because. Um, yeah. If you're just a singer at this point, you either have to go in, down the Dusty and Memphis route and, you know, really sing. Um, or, mm. you know, like Lulu, uh, well, Lulu's career died for a bit and then she sort of came back with these sort of, you know, doing like Man, from the Gold, Man with the Golden Gun and stuff, like these really sort of slightly camp, punchy mm. songs. Um, and Sandy can't really do either of those. She's sort of a woman out of time. Yeah. I mean, because those early songs are fucking brilliant. Oh yeah, they are. By this by this time, what she probably needs is is another sort of successful production line, in a sense. Um, the, the, I know what you mean. There, there there is this this thing whereby if they're not singer songwritery types, what do they do in the seventies? And the most successful sort of female performances that I've seen on top of the pops in the seventies tend to be either emerging from the Motown stable or they're emerging from the reggae sort of stable over in over in Jamaica yeah. so things like Susan Cadigan and stuff like yeah. that that we've talked about in the past that works just yes. is kind of searching for a role here but you know um, at the beginning of it it's not introduced is it and it goes in straight in no I mean that to me as a yeah. top of the pops watcher for many years is still a massively unsettling thing not to know the name it is isn't not it not to see the name yeah and I'm wondering whether it's yeah. a reflection of perhaps top of the pops was still considered almost an extension of the radio one family in a way and so consequently, yes. it kind of reflects <clears throat> more of a, not, not a radio sensibility, but this thing where I guess now and then DJs at the time would play one record and then play another and they wouldn't necessarily say, say yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. So maybe it's an extension of that, I don't know. So this performance did absolutely nothing for the song and it failed to make the charts. Sandy Shaw would never trouble the charts again until May of 1984 when she was backed by the non-cuntish 75% of the Smiths for a cover of Hand in Glove. <laughs> However, she would spend the 70s popping up on various TV shows such as The Good Old Days and an appearance in 1972 on an unnamed BBC show where she performed the most cod reggae song ever about being a black woman who lived in Clapham. You've heard this, haven't you, chaps? What's it called, though? I haven't heard no. that. You've not no. heard this? No. It's, it's cod reggae in batter with white sauce. <laughs> tomorrow there from Sandy Shaw and before that we have the fifth dimension here's a record that shot up to the number 13 sound this week beautiful one from the Temptations I can't get next to you hold it everybody hold it hold it listen I can turn the gray sky blue Blackburn pops up in front of an op-art kaleidoscope background and introduces Can't Get Next to You by The Temptations. 
Formed in Detroit in 1960 as the Primes, The Temptations signed to Motown on a side label in 1961, but it wasn't until David Ruffin joined the group in 1963 that they got moved on to the main label. They scored a number one hit in the US with My Girl, which only got to number 43 over here the following year, and they had a run of hits in the US throughout the 60s. But by 1967, David Ruffin started going around thinking he was Summit, demanding that he be chauffeured around in a mink-lined limousine and that he get a name credit a la Dinah Ross and the Supremes, and he was sacked. In 1968, inspired by the rise of Sly and the Family Stone, The Temptations switched to a psychedelic soul route, and they recorded the LP, Diana Ross and the Supremes Join the Temptations. Fucking Diana Ross again. And a track from that LP, I'm Gonna Make You Love Me, got to number three in the UK in February of 1969. They had their first UK top 10 hit on their own in April of that year when Get Ready, a track recorded in 1966, got to number 10. This is the follow-up to Cloud 9, which got to number 15 in September of 1969, and it's up from number 20 to number 13. Okay, it's a shame it's... Um, I can't get next to you, actually, because out of the run of singles that The Temptations had at the time, it's probably... I mean, it's, it seems strange calling it a weak link because it's still a great record. But, but it's a fantastic but when you think song. about the singles they were about to unleash, like Psychedelic Shack and Ball of Confusion. I mean, what a year. Ball of Confusion and Just My Imagination in that year. And then next year, of course, Popper was a rolling yeah. stone. What a fucking astonishing set of singles that was. And any Temptations yeah. best of, really, is, is you know, it, I wouldn't consider anyone... I, I, I hate that. I don't consider you a music fan if you don't listen to this. But fuck me. Those are some of the most amazing singles ever. Um this song, I like the fact that it kind of showcases each individual temptation, uh, their sort of individual vocal style, which is always nice. And anyone mm. into hip hop, of course, when they hear the intro to this record, is straight in the middle of the night and living bass heads uh, by Public Enemy. Of course. And, and, uh, temptations are an absolute sample goldmine for this. But uh, I wouldn't say it's a bad song, but considering what surrounds it, what surrounds it, what came before and what came after. You know, in a matter of months, they're going to drop Ball of Confusion. And, and it's just that record is just fucking astonishing. Yeah. In comparison, this is a bit more conventional, a bit less psychedelic um, than, than they would they would go on to be. And, and Popper was a Rolling Stone, which is about a year away from here, is still, mm. I think, one of the most staggering records ever made. Um, this full yeah. version is up there with Isaac Hayes' productions from the time. So, yeah, great band. I will always love The Temptations, but this is possibly the weak link in their singles of that year. Yeah. I mean, the thing that struck me from that introduction was how little success they had in the UK in the 60s. Yeah, I think part of the problem for The Temptations is that they were always the third best of the Motown male vocal groups, which still Mm. makes them incredibly good. But there's a sense in which they're wearing shameful bronze. You know what I mean? And it's (laughs) like... Um, yeah this has never been one of my favourites and these are more outfits that really don't work in black and white Um, no and I always recoil from float on type vocal arrangements where singers with differently pitched voices introduce themselves (laughs) in turn it's (laughs) it's always a bit chicken in a basket but yeah I mean the Temptations they're amazing but yeah. And as a live performance, this is great because they're, they're battling against the BBC Orchestra yeah, yeah, here, aren't they? Yeah, I hear that. There's a, there's a moment of total non-syncness where it all falls apart, really. Um, and then the lead mm. singer just grabs it by the scruff of the neck and gets it back. So the following week, I Can't Get Next to You would drop one place to number 40. For fuck's sake, man. They'd probably flown all the way on that plane that was on leaving on a jet plane. 
<laughs> driven past some mad fucking woman waving some flowers about outside a church to go on top of the pops for nothing. Ugh. The follow-up, Psychedelic Shack, would only make it to number 33 in June of this year, but they would get to number 7 in October with Baller Confusion and number 8 with Just My Imagination in July of 1971. They would keep going right through the 70s and would score a number 12 hit with Treat Her Like a Lady in November of from the Temptations. Here's the guys come all the way from America, specifically for the opening of a brand new film called Butch Cassidy and the Sundowners, in which he sings this particular number. So here's the original version, which has been top of the American hit parade for quite some time. It isn't quite there now, but it's been there for a number of times. Uh, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from B.J. Thomas. Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head while the horse by Cliff Nobles plays in the background, there you go. There's your uh, there's your third reference to Dex's Midnight Runners. Blackburn points out that the next act has flown over from America specifically for the opening of the new film Butch Cassidy and the Sundowners. <laughs> Fucking hell! It's everything wrong. Yeah. At least he, at least he didn't say David Cassidy and the Sundowners. You know, you got to give him that. <laughs> And the song he introduces is Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head by B.J. Thomas. Born in Hugo, Oklahoma in 1942, Billy Joe Thomas was the lead singer of B.J. Thomas and the Triumphs in the mid-60s, and he went solo in 1968 and landed a number five US hit in 1968 with Hooked on a Feeling. The following year, he was approached by Burt Bacharach and Hal David to record Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head for the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Tone. <laughs> after it was turned down by Ray Stevens and Bob Dylan. The song has just finished a four-week stint as the US number one in the previous month, and it's already at number 41 in this week's charts, but it's the Sasha Distel version that's at number 41 in the charts. Have you heard that Sasha Distel version? I don't think I have. Oh, it's horrible. You can yeah. imagine. Just imagine raindrops imagine, yeah. keep falling on my head, sung by Sasha Distel. That's what it's like. No, this is the <laughs> best. This, there's something, even though it's a, you know, a, 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 an Olden's friendly song, there's uh, mm. something, there's some true grit about BJ Thomas. He looks like mm. a man who's, it's, he's got the rugged face of a man who's, fought his way to the top of the uh, Christian pop world only to be <laughs> plastered with enough hairspray to blind every rabbit on earth and pushed out <laughs> into this world made out of Baco foil and teenage <laughs> beauty queens dressed like sexy mm. clowns and yeah he does look like he's quite keen to get off there he's got this yeah. really determined professional sincerity but he's clearly mm. thinking shit <laughs> he just yes. wants, to, wants to go yeah he initially, to... is, initially when you first see him as well it's like quite a close up of his, his head yeah. he's got kind of these granite features he looks initially like some sort of giant like yes. Robert Wadlow or something but <laughs> I, th I think Taylor's right there, there's a sort of and it, it's crucially to this I mean I would say that Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head is, is one of the lesser kind of Baccarat tunes but the thing is with those songs any Baccarat David song it's just instant warmth and sunshine just sort of piped into your cells in a way yeah. it's just a, a, a lovely thing and 
you know, uh, not to fucking plug anything, but I've sung these songs live on stage in the past. That we did uh, uh, my, the band that we did some backrack tribute night with the Moon uh, Bears. Pop yes, that's right. and, Check and, them out. And, and, and and this song was one of the ones that, that I had to do, and and singing it. You realise with backrack songs that the crucial thing is the emotion's there. It's there in the chords and it's there in the in the song. Mm. And the crucial thing you can't do is ornament it in any way. Yeah. Um, all you've got to do is hit the notes with the right voice. Yeah. And co- uh, you, so you need a, a voice that's slightly warm that can crack a little. And that's why Dion Warwick's so successful doing yeah. backrack songs. And that's why B.J. Thomas is well is as well. There's a kind of elderly sadness to his voice. It kind of suggests. A lot, and, it, and there's a kind of Grizzly Adams pioneer sadness to it. Mm. <laughs> I really, really like um, a lesser Baccarat number, but still absolutely magical. Yeah, well, Neil's Definitely. dead right about what these songs demand of singers. It's very like uh, if you speak to a really good actor about Shakespeare. This is what they'll tell you about Shakespeare: that you don't really act it. You, what your mm. job is to find the rhythm in the lines and to know mm. where to put the emphasis and then it yeah. takes care of itself right bad Shakespeare yeah. is when people try and how am I you know how am I going to do this role that's not how you do it uh, mm. but it's impossible for me to be objective about this song because when I was three I had a little Fisher Price music box which played it so to me oh. this song is like my mother's face or the yes. sensation of being tucked up in bed. And I don't expect anyone else to understand or share that feeling. Uh, in fact, our eternal inability to do that for each other is uh, the basis of human loneliness. <laughs> and a big, part of, <laughs> a big part of why we all spend the few years we have on this planet in emotional darkness. But it also, this song has popped up a few times at emotionally turbulent points in my life purely by chance and i have this terrible feeling that i'll it'll i'll hear it on a passing car radio or something on my way back from the doctors on the day that the test results don't come back clear (laughs) i'm I'm, taylor i'm gonna be shitting myself about you all day now i might i might even indulge in the irony of having it played at my funeral um if just to bring home to the mourners if any that you are indeed <laughs> Shut up. you are indeed never going to stop the rain by complaining so even mm. that is futile and it's all we have <laughs> <laughs> taylor you mentioned the music box that played this yeah um, just so just got a memory because you said fisher price yeah did anyone have you know i'm sure you're the same there was one toy you fucking wanted and you didn't get yeah. and, and i've i've never yeah, and then you find somebody who's had one and they just pour disappointment on it because they say, oh, it was shit, it fell over. Yeah, it yeah can The one I wanted... Ah, oh, gutted, man. Have I preempted you? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I wasn't going to ask about Crossfire Rotten Can Alley. I was actually going to ask, and this is a bit childish, maybe it was um, beneath you guys, but I always wanted... Do you remember Frog Chorus? Oh. Frog Chorus was a keyboard yeah. with frogs on it. And you played the keyboard and the frogs opened their mouths yeah. and made a sound. Yeah. I'm guessing it was just a shit glockenspiel, but I've always been curious as to whether it was any good or not. Right, they had one at my uh, play school. All um, oh, right. And wow. Of, except, of course, one of the frogs was broken. And yeah, obviously, yeah. Out. But, yeah, it is basically, it's a bit of plastic in it that goes ding, mm. ding, ding. But, oh, yeah. Another dream gone. Yeah. Yeah, well, I bet Paul McCartney had fucking hundreds of them. <laughs> so two weeks later BJ Thomas's original version would enter the UK chart at number 38 
and would drop out again the following week, which was the one and only time that he'd trouble the charts. Meanwhile, the vastly inferior Sasha Distel version would get to number 10. BJ Thomas would be a chart regular in the US throughout the early 70s, and he bagged a number one with the longest titled chart topper in history, Hey, Won't You Play Another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong Song in April of 1975. And hey, Al, I've just realised, mm? this is the song where the woman with the blood coming down her face is still in the background. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, very strange. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe she was just caught out in the rain. <laughs> I'm getting a I'm getting a Slayer earworm now because of raining blood. So. Thomas, uh, you've probably read in the papers that Peter Morinello has just been signed to Arsenal for the fantastic fee of £100,000, and we're very lucky to have him with us here on Top of the Pops to present tonight's prizes. Over to you, Peter. Hello. Well, you've been chosen as the best dancer here, there. Uh, what's your name? Linda. Linda, well, uh, congratulations. Uh, I'd like to present you with the record. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, hello, uh, what's your Hi. name? Celia. Uh, well, your eyes are fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'd like to present you with these uh, records. And, uh... Thank you. Okay. Finally, we get to find out who the winner of the dancing competition is, and the prize is awarded by none other than Peter Marinello. Born in Edinburgh in 1950, Peter Marinello had played two seasons for a Burning in the late 60s and was touted as the next George Best when he was transferred to Arsenal for a club record £100,000, which would be £1.5 million today. Fucking hell, what would that get you? Peter Marinello. (laughs) Yes, nowadays, yes. Marinello looking like a Caledonian Richard Beckinsale sapped of all self-confidence makes small talk with a petite blonde called Linda and gives her a bundle of records and then talks to Delia who apparently has been given some records for having the world's stupidest fake eyelashes this is a strange thing to have in Top of the Pops isn't it and differing reactions from Peter Marinello to both girls the girl who's blonde I don't yeah. know, it's like he's weighing up her age or something as he's speaking to her and he decides to mm. leave well alone. And then the girl with yes. the, the astonishing eyelashes, he he's not cracking onto her or anything, but he's... No, he's not, he he's terrified, terrified isn't he? slightly interested as well, I think. It is a strange thing to have. As if, as if those eyelashes are going to jump off her eyes and sink the teeth into his <laughs> neck. Well, I reviewed Peter Marinello's autobiography a few years ago for When Saturday Comes. Oh, Well, it was terrible in both senses, in that his life story is quite depressing and faintly tragic, which is the worst kind of tragic. And also mm. it was horribly written, but um, he goes on about this in it he talks about uh going on top of the pops and he talks about when he reviewed the singles in melody maker this week. what yeah um his this very week. week i think it was yeah because his single of the week was instant karma oh, so, right. Uh, right that suggests it was he was on a big uh pr yeah. uh, push at the moment um and so this was the highlight of his life right it from reading his his book the two highlights of his life appeared to be this week when he went on top of the pops and and <laughs> the offices of melody maker um and then a point in the 80s where he opened up a failed nightclub and on opening night uh eddie kid and vicky michelle turned up <laughs> which is, that is that like the the uncrowned king and queen of the avent uh, <laughs> but the thing is the thing about this clip is it's 
so painful because he's not shy as such, but he's very awkward and mm. he's also very physically oh. self-conscious, which is very unusual in a professional sportsman. Yeah. Like, normally they carry themselves with an enormous amount of physical self-confidence. And mm. the first shot we see of him, he's stooping. Mm, mm. And it's part yeah. of he's talking to a girl who's much shorter than him. But mm. it also, ju he looks bent over, like with the weight yeah. of his big money transfer pressing down on his shoulders. And you can <laughs> tell it's all going to go. And over. those records. Don't forget the records. Yeah, those records which he can barely hold because he's so skinny. But yeah, he, there's uh, when he talks to Linda, who's won the dance competition, they're both like that and it's they're like two children left alone mm. in the house mm. you know they'd be clinging to each other if should they... we put the uh, music center on while everyone's <laughs> out yeah but then he, when he turns to that the statuesque woman with the 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 huntsman spider eyelashes <laughs> it, it looks, yeah it looks like she's going to eat him alive but then she's yeah. kind of nervous and shaky as well in the yeah. presence of this dweeb that she's towering over mm. yeah um and you think yeah, this sort of the collapse. She looks like a very confident woman, but this collapse of confidence in the face of celebrity, like even a duff big money Arsenal signing, is so overwhelming. Even at the after a decade which saw off a lot of other forms of deference mm. and subservience, the this deference to celebrity is uh, is still there, and you can really see how unscrupulous older men would be operating in this environment um, mm. and you know I mean there's nothing wrong in principle with men in the music business taking advantage of the opportunity it can offer to have sex with attractive young women I mean you know as long as everybody's happy then good on you but when I worked in the music business uh, what the one thing I would say for myself, and I, there's not many things I would say for my younger self, but I ran a mile from this kind of trembling, impressionable uncertainty, because it's not nice to uh, these sort of you'd meet these girls with eyes like moons, you know, full of vodka and just mm. juice, and you just think, Christ, if I if I was a cunt, mm. you know mm. what I mean? I, I, mm. Horrible. And but you realise that for a lot of blokes around at the time, even those that weren't actually in rapists or child molesters. No, this is the turn on the, the frightened rabbit look and yeah. the, the mm. sort of the horrible power game and the incomplete agency of these girls. The fact that they didn't understand the game. That was, that was the point mm. for them. That was what, that was what drew them. Um, and it, yeah, it, it cures you of nostalgia Absolutely. quite quickly. That, that's, uh, everything you you're talking about, about is kind of what Roscoe symbolises in that documentary that we were on about earlier. Um, he's very much yeah. playing that game, isn't he? Yeah, and that moment of, as, sorry to go back to that documentary, we talked about for about 45 minutes, but there's a <laughs> moment of real contempt in that where John Peel comes in because he's using the studio that Roscoe's just been in. And we've seen Roscoe holding court with all these young women. And John Peel picks up a bit of paper off the desk and goes, oh, there's a phone number here. Is this, is this for you? I'm no doubt some young woman throwing herself at you. And Roscoe sort of looks at it and turns around to his producer and reads out the number and says, does that mean anything to you? And the bloke goes, no. And then he just screws it up and throws it in the bin. <laughs> so Peter Marinello would only play 38 league games for Arsenal and score a mere three league goals. 
Thank you very much there, Peter. And do you know something? We have won, once again, the NME uh, Top of the Pops Award. It has become number one in the television section, hasn't it, once again? Yes, and from the NME, I'd like to present for you, Maurice Kinn. Thank you very much. Uh, Tony, uh, for the fifth consecutive year, Top of the Pops has been voted the best television show, and it gives me a great pleasure to give you this cut on behalf of, of the New Musical Express. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. much. Lovely. Thank you very much. So, after Blackburn thanks Peter Marinello in an accent that all Scotsmen love English people to do, <laughs> he himself is awarded a prize, the NME Top of the Pops Award. No, Tony, it's actually the NME Reader's Poll Award for Best TV Show. And in attendance to present it is Maurice Kinn, the owner of the NME, who bought it for £1,500 in 1952 when it was called the Accordion Times and New Musical Express. Oh, we're seeing everyone in this episode, aren't we? It's a strange moment of basically product placement for the NME to a certain extent. Um, well, yeah. Maurice Kinn is an interesting figure. I mean, he kind of bridges lots of different eras. And, you know, when he started at the NME, he was hiring people like Michael Winner to write for them. Um, uh, so Fuck. yeah, I mean, one of, another thing that I, I found out about Morris Kinn was that his most prized possession was a letter from John Major, um, which John Major wrote to him when he was Prime Minister, right. um, saying, "Thank you for your years of editing the Enemy. I religiously bought the Enemy and read it cover to cover." So yeah, John wow. Major. <laughs> Wonder when he stopped. But yeah, John Major, music press, um, music press writer. What else are enemy voters going to vote for? Because there aren't any of the pop music shows on telly. Yeah, what else um, is there? Do you think John? Do you think John Major was one of the apparently one of the thirty thousand readers who stopped reading the paper after Paul Morley's interview with Jerry Garcia? <laughs> Maybe so. John Major is responsible though for my favourite political quote ever, which was, "When you're up against the wall, it's time to turn around and start fighting." I do like that quote. <laughs> but yeah, it's odd Morris Kim being on this. Very odd. Yeah, he's, he's certainly not ahead, is he, to use the parlance of the era. He's just some middle-aged bloke in a suit, which is probably what the uh, current owner of the NME looks like nowadays. <laughs> I have no idea if anyone owns yeah. it. Um, it's always hilarious when you see uh, music journalists from the 60s because they did have some young writers who knew their pop and rock and soul but mostly the people doing the personal appearances were the senior staff who were who were like the the enemy stuff a lot of them were old denmark street people and modi maker had a lot of old jazz guys and stuff um so you know it's like when you see the enemy poll winners concert and it's like here's the editor of the enemy and he looks like philip larkin or something you know is that and the the all the you see that clip of Led Zeppelin on Nationwide um, and Ray Coleman of Melody Maker comes on and he he looks like second place in a Michael Fish lookalike contest that Michael Fish himself had also entered um, it's r really horrendous yeah horrible so there you go right now we've gone to the number one song it's number one for the second week running Edison Lighthouse and Love Grows <laughs>
London in 1970. Yes, the same 1970 that we're in now. Edison Lighthouse were a band that were hastily formed as a vehicle for lead singer Tony Burroughs, who was also the frontman at the time for White Plains and Pipkins and the original Brotherhood of Man. They only came together when this song made the charts and Burroughs needed a band for its original appearance on Top of the Pops. This is its second week at number one. I quite like this. Kind of sounds like a Motown tune from a few years earlier with a mm-hmm. little bit of Credence style rock in there as well. That like that bit. Uh, it's a great confection, but it ends up leaving me, I don't know, a little cold because of one little thing that annoys me and that's the drawn out note um, that goes at the end of the uh, chorus. And mm. nobody knows, but yeah. I don't like that bit for some reason. It bugs me. It feels laboured and it it makes the song lose its energy. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, in comparison to the other things that Tony Burroughs was doing at the time, I, I'd, I'd I'd say it's better than Gimme That Ding, well, yeah. <laughs> which I remember yeah. distinctly for some reason, because that record stuck around for a while. Yeah, but then um, so would stabbing yourself in the bollocks <laughs> with a fork. Well, quite. And um, yeah, so it doesn't float my boat that much because of that long drawn out note. Um, mm. But other than that, it's, it's, it, it, in a sense, it's dated because the, the kind of groove of it, it does feel like a sort of 66 or 67 record. Yeah. And it's, it feels a bit um, like an old Motown record in parts of it. But um, yeah. yeah, it's a good tune. If you're going to do it, uh, do it like this. Just do it. Just be slightly too old and not a real band and commercial to the exclusion of everything and anything else and maybe just maybe you might end up with a an inner sense incredible record which it it's about objectively it's about a hundredth as good as i want you back but it does have something of that uplifting transporting feel about it um because well even though it's an obvious confection just the demands of the day mean that it's got this uh primitive undertouch got those sort of cousinets cats bubblegum guitars and the really thin medium wave friendly strings yeah and it's massively compressed and especially on this top of the pops where everything is massive i don't know whether that's just uh from the telly recording or because it's gone through whatever it is Everything sounds very thin and powerful and compressed on this top of the pops, and it really suits this record. Mm. I mean, really, the sound of early 70s records is umami. You know, it's this very sort of deep, rich, there's a lot of mid-range. Yeah. Um, it's quite a dark sound. And this is much more like Sherbet. This is like a throwback mm. to uh, to 60s records. Like, you have to feel like, you listen to it, you feel like you have to shield your ears, like, from the light, you know. <laughs> it's like squinting across... Andalusia with one hand up to your eyes, you know. But I love this record. Yeah, um, me too. And they, they, and also I like the fact they've got a name like Jefferson Airplane or Moby yeah. Grape, but better. Yes, it, it's fantastic. And taken from Eddystone you know, Lighthouse, which I believe is yeah, in Cornwall or something like that. It spoiled it when I heard that. It's yeah. Just, but it also, you know, they they did a load of other records, didn't they, with different people on? Yes, they did. Um, yes. Well, Tony Burroughs did anyway. Yeah. No, but uh, Edison Lighthouse did as well. They got a different singer in. and Oh, yes. Band yes, and they stuff. did, yeah. 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 And we also, we, when they show their dancers, we see Linda bugging <laughs> away, winner of the dance contest, invested with this new confidence. Yeah. Being a winner. Yeah. Um, but wondering about what, what song she's going to have to dance to and 
you know, whether yeah. to smile or not. The, I feel bad for the girl next to her who's filmed from a gynecological angle. Yes. Uh, it's like they might as well have given them stirrups, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like this lingering shot of tomorrow's laundry. It's like... It's like I mean, it's not my idea of, of, of sexy, you know. No. And it's it's also not my idea of uh, acceptable. No. Uh, the sound quality... This is, sorry yeah. to drag it away from important stuff, but the sound quality is key because... I think like Taylor's suggesting, I mean, the, the, the thing is, all the elements of this song, they le- they don't leap out at you as such, but they're noticeable. The guitar lick is noticeable. Precisely mm. I don't know whether I'd want to hear this song on my big speakers, you know, in nice stereo. It is one of those tunes that, for me, is always going to sound best cranked loud on AM radio. Yeah, um, because on a car have, radio with yeah. a with a with a coat hanger stuck in the uh, in the hole. Yeah, because <laughs> all those elements really sing out. It does coalesce. Don't get me wrong; it's not a bitty record, but it's um, it, it really mm. sounds great on this kind of on this in this kind of format in a way. So, love grows where my rosemary goes. We'll spend another three weeks at number one until it was usurped by Wandering Star by Lee Marvin. Tony Burroughs would get to number 10 later this month with United We Stand by the Brotherhood of Man. Number 9 the following month with My Baby Loves Loving, White Plains. Number 6 in April with Gimme Dat Ding, Pipkins. And he would appear twice on the same episode of Top of the Pops on two separate occasions fronting two separate bands. Although Burroughs never recorded under the name Edison Lighthouse again, the band formed around him decided to carry on. But the only other chart action they got was in January of 1971 when It's Up To You, Petulia, got to number 49. Number one from Edison Lighthouse. Enjoy yourself. That's all we've got for you, I'm afraid. Be back with us at the same time next week, won't you? Thank you very much for watching. Be back for the same time for another edition of Top or the Pops. Bye bye. What was on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows this episode with Softly Softly Task Force. Coverage of the 1970 European Figure Skating Championships from Leningrad in Sports Night with Coleman and 24 Hours has yet another panel debate about the permissive society. (laughs) BBC Two is just finishing an episode of Call My Bluff with Antonia Frazier and Clive Dunn. Then it's Enoch Powell on the Money Programme, followed by an episode of The Six Wives of Henry VIII. ITV has an episode of Max, with Max, By Graves, Danny LaRue and Jeff Love. Alan Wicker hangs around with the Bluebell Girls in Wicker in Europe. And they finish up with an episode of Hadley. So, chaps, what are we talking about in the pram or the womb or the twinkle of a dad's eye tomorrow? Get me to an incubator, quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Two years premature. <laughs> I think it would have to be Billy Preston because that was the only actual performance where someone mm. did something physically memorable, you know. Did you mm. see that guy who leapt up from the piano and did a massive yeah. chicken <laughs> dance? I think I might be talking yeah. about the petals in the face of that dancer for that video mm. and also maybe mm. the, just the fact that Peter Marinello was on it um, yeah I'll probably be talking about that yeah I, I, I mean to my mind this was an episode that was kind of saved by black Americans mm. I mean I think the most memorable things on it were all you know the two Motown acts 
fifth dimension and uh, even Billy Preston, even though the song wasn't up to much, there was a, there was a bit of charisma about him. So what are we buying on Saturday? I'd be buying Sandy Shaw, you lot wouldn't. Um, I'd also be buying Temptations, Jackson 5 and John Lennon, I think. Mm. Yeah, Lennon, uh, S Blue, J5, E Lighthouse, possibly the Temps, yeah. We know that in a few years to come, Top of the Pops are going to be pushing out tracks that are not in the charts yet. But at least they'd say, look, this is a tip for the top or this is an album track. But in this episode, they've, they've pushed out like five records there were four flops and you know and they kind of fucked up Peter Marinello's career as well so you know we've we've seen a 45 minute episode and we're never going to see an episode as long as this again apart from the specials and the Christmas shows Um, do you think it was too long? I think it sustains I think it's all right because it, it comes across really as more of a kind of horrible phrase but like a music show rather than a chart show it's more like mm. something like fucking later or something without that cunt doing his boogie woogie piano playing. Um, <laughs> so it, it it's kind of all right, but but it is totally different to seemingly just a top of the pots from just a few months or, or, or a couple of years later, because really mm. you get no sense from this. Um, you get a sense of Britain to a certain extent, but you don't really see any kids. The audience, yes. they just look, con- uh, you know. They've got that please sir kind of kidness to them. Like, yes, you know, um, yeah, definitely. They all look about 30. And they look cool in a way. They look like they're London clubbers. But they you don't get that mm. sense of, you know, kids from the provinces being in that audience. Kids from, you know, yeah. not from London being in that audience. So the old episode has this kind of sophistication to it that, that doubtless includes parents as well. But there's no clear demarcation in this episode, really, between kids stuff and, and grown-up stuff. There's, there doesn't yeah. seem to be any record that would have antagonised anyone. Now, we're a year yeah. away here from what? I mean, fucking Virginia Plains out in a year and Hot Love is just down the pipe yeah. a few months down the road. But here, yeah. the 60s still seem to exist in a sort of yes. tremendously sophisticated way. I was uh, When I clicked on an episode that said 1970, I was actually expecting a bit more ineptness than I got. Um, it was yeah. actually a really, really slick and effective production. It's a very adulterated episode of Top of the Pops, isn't it? It is, yeah. But, I mean, the, the, basically, you remember when we were talking about, like, I think it was a 1979 episode, and I think it might have been Price who said, oh, well, the 80s actually started when Gary Newman did this in 79. Mm. There's a sense here that, that have the 60s finished yet? Not entirely sure. No. I mean, maybe I'm putting too much on Mark Boland's back because I'm a big fan, but to me, the mm. 70s start kind of with hot love later on that year and in yeah. a sense lennon unintentionally perhaps has prefigured at least the sound of that kind of thing with the slight yeah. throwback of i agree with that on this, on this episode so that brings another episode of chart music to a close don't forget you can get us on www.chart-music.co.uk you can come and join us on facebook at facebook.com slash chart music podcast and you can join us on twitter chart music t-o-t-p thank you very much for listening to the episode as always but special thanks to taylor parks great pleasure as always al and special thanks as well to neil kulkarne thank you neil cheers i really enjoyed that thanks for listening everyone hope to see you soon my name's al needham a is for alchemist l is for lucifer Chart music.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.